Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Champaign City Council study session for Tuesday, February 9th, 2021. Um, City Manager, do you want me to throw it directly to the Chief of Police, or am I turning it over to you? Your Honor, that would be fine. You can turn it directly over to the Chief. Chief Cobb. Good evening. Present with me this evening to assist with the presentations is Deputy Chief Dave Schaefer, who commands our Operational Support Division, and Deputy Chief Tom Petrelli, who commands our Operations Division. Deputy Chief Schaefer will start the pre presentation by setting the background for our discussion. Deputy Chief Schaefer. Deputy Schaefer, you may be muted still. Deputy Schaefer, are you with us? am now, yes. Can you hear me fine? Yes, go ahead, sorry. All right, thank you. Good evening, Mayor. Good evening, Council. Tonight, Chief Cobb, Deputy Chief Petrelli, and I will speak to you about policing. Our primary conversation tonight is to report the findings of our community engagement sessions and highlight efforts undertaken by the Champaign Police Department provide policing services to the community. At times, local or national events involving police shine a light on our profession, requiring discussion and at times change. Nationally, recent events in policing have renewed conversations on topics ranging from police practices, racism, and criminal justice reform. At times, this has led to unrest, protests, and demonstrations. And locally, we have witnessed these as well. On June 6, 2020, the Champaign Police Department and other local law enforcement agencies assisted members of the community with a large, peaceful march throughout the city, which served voice to these and other concerns. The death of Kiwan Carrington during an interaction with the Champaign Police Department in 2009 led to many conversations with the community. At times, those conversations were emotional, difficult, and direct. Yet they led to the creation of the community coalition, which still exists today to assist the community. The coalition also involves the Champaign Police Department, which has been an active member since the coalition's inception and provides the police department and community an opportunity to share information with each other in a monthly setting. The Champaign Police Department has continued efforts to interact with and bridge gaps with the community while ensuring best practices of policing. However, national incidents involving police can and do reignite dialogue within our community. The death of Michael Brown in a police encounter in Ferguson, Missouri in 2014 led to civil unrest and renewed conversations about policing. In the following years, the Champaign Police refined the delivery of services and adjusted police practices to better serve the community. A departmental strategic plan established in 2015 
included many reformative topics and ensured compliance with the State of Illinois Police Reform Act of 2015, and additionally incorporated many of the pillars from the President's Task Force on 21st Century Policing. These measures in part led to department implementation of body-worn cameras in 2017, which supplements in-car video camera systems that have now been in use for over 15 years. In May of 2020, George Floyd died during an encounter with the Minneapolis, Minneapolis police, leading to nationwide unrest and additional calls for police reform. The Champaign Police Department understood the need for those conversations centering around police reform and began the process of obtaining input from the community on concerns involving policing, criminal justice reform through the use of moderated community engagement sessions. And although our design was to gather, speak and hear from individuals in person, the coronavirus pandemic required that we modify our approach and conduct these sessions virtually. Even so, it did not detract from the goal of hearing the community's thoughts and concerns and how we balance this information with policing responsibilities. In response to these and other events, the Champaign Police Department has, over the past several years, implemented additional policy and practice changes to ensure best policing practices, which include in part, a revised use of force policy that incorporates de-escalation, requires a duty to intervene, and includes restrictions on the use of chokeholds along with other provisions that are consistent with the eight can't wait recommendations from former President Obama. Additional measures have included added community engagement opportunities, improvements to professional standards investigations, and continued efforts to seek inclusive engagement opportunities with the community through continued dialogue and measures such as the adoption of the NAACP 10 shared principles. Lastly, Although the dialogue between police and the community continues, recent state legislation introduced as House Bill 3653 has added new topics of discussion and potentially future challenges for law enforcement. That being said, after many months of conversation, self-assessment and reflection, we report the results of our conversations with the community and staff. We know the conversations are just beginning. However, the men and women of the Champaign Police Department are dedicated public safety professionals that care for the community they serve. And although there are many challenges ahead, the Champaign Police Department and community can partner to address these issues together. Thank you for your time. And at this moment, I'll turn the presentation over to Deputy Chief Tom Petrelli. On June 3rd, 2020, former President Barack Obama promoted a mayoral pledge during a town hall meeting, asking mayors to commit to a series of police reform actions. And Mayor Deb Finan signed the mayoral pledge, which urged municipalities to engage their communities by capturing a diverse range of input and then reporting those findings. At the July 10th, 2020 study session, council directed the police department to embark upon a series of public engagement opportunities to help foster enhanced community discussions about policing practices and strategies for the future. This process invited diverse community input to inform future decisions of the city about policing policies and services in Champaign. The public engagement process began with five moderated community listening sessions, followed by a series of facilitated study circles, helping to inform the community's vision for policing 
and the broader desires and needs of the public. The following information is a summary of the community input during these processes. For the community listening sessions, the police department began by convening a series of virtual community listening sessions or town hall meetings to both listen to and learn from the public about their concerns and future vision for policing practices, strategies, and engagement. These sessions were held on five dates between September 24th and October 9th. Each listening session was led by moderator, Dr. Travis L. Dixon, professor of communication at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. There were five major themes provided by the public during the listening sessions. And those include the role of police. Regarding the role of police, several commenters acknowledged the need for the city to review police calls for service and corresponding models of response and generally supported allocating funds and resources to community-based programs or alternate staffing models, such as the use of social workers, or other subject matter experts who are trained to intervene in nonviolent or non-criminal calls. While the police are first responders, community input suggests that it does not mean the police are the appropriate first responder for every need. Participants noted that for certain non-criminal calls requiring skills that fall outside of the police scope, training, and expertise may include police as co-responders or as secondary responders. Trust and legitimacy. Listening session input indicated that a lack of trust continues to exist locally between the police and communities of color, especially among black and or African Americans. Some members of the community acknowledge that the Champaign Police Department has made some positive efforts to address this lack of trust. However, fostering stronger community partnerships and engagement to address shared problems continues to need improvement. In reference to training, community input suggested advanced training including implicit bias training and de-escalation training. And those are necessary to help influence behavior that may be outside of an individual's conscious awareness. Commenters also acknowledge that law enforcement officers would benefit by improved communication training and skill building. Especially among communities of color, the initial interaction between an officer and an individual carries significant importance and improved self-awareness, communication, and body language may foster a more positive interaction. Education and transparency. Some comments indicated the community at large might not be aware of the department's policies and procedures and efforts that have been made to address community concerns and the issues that the city continues to work towards improving. Community members suggested that the department should do more to help publicize its policies, advancements, and overall work. And finally, officer support and wellness was discussed, and some participants suggested implementation of a regular evaluation for officer welfare to help identify any underlying problems and to ensure suitability for performance, in addition to ensuring the officer's general well-being. Upon the completion of the community listening sessions, the public was invited to engage in more in-depth discussion about the future of policing through a series of virtual study circles which saw input, input from the public and our youth and immigrant community. The general public discussions were facilitated by community volunteers and paired residents with police representatives to engage in dialogue, which includes input from the youth community. The major themes provided by the public during the study circles include police community relations, 
Many participant comments were consistent with the public input received during the listening sessions, which acknowledged the existing challenges between law enforcement and communities of color. They also acknowledge it is important to understand the history of policing and that law enforcement policies and systems may have led to an unjustified disparate impact against black individuals. This has led to decades of mistrust, causing black individuals and other individuals of color to not view the police in the same way white communities do. During a discussion about community policing, a central question to this topic was how do we create bridges that last? Discussion around community policing involved more opportunity for police officers to interact with the community and to serve as role models, including engagement and trust building exercise with our youth community. Discussing residency, participants noted that if police officers resided inside the city limits, that could assist officers to become more culturally aware of Champaign neighborhoods and possibly improve civic engagement, not just on duty, but during the time they spend off duty, getting to know residents more personally. During discussions focused on community response and the police department's response to non-emergency, non-criminal calls for service, the general consensus supported looking more closely at co-responder models, especially involving calls related to mental health. Additional input involved law enforcement serving as secondary responders to other subject matter experts to address community needs. The discussion involving community response was supplemented by community members who believe there needs to be enhanced diversion and restorative justice programs as an alternative to police or court involvement, especially for the community youth. Training, study circle participants also supported additional training of officers in a variety, a variety of areas. Those training topics commonly mentioned were implicit bias, use of force and de-escalation training. Community education, access to community education into police practices, policies and procedures remains a challenge. Recommendations offered to improve transparency include creating a community advocate role that could serve as a liaison between community members and police to help strengthen information sharing. Participants also discussed workforce diversity and officer mental health and the input encouraged more diversity within the police department while others suggested it might not improve police community relations as much and that the root of the problem is systemic in nature. Additional comments include the stress and workload officers are asked to handle, supporting officer wellness and an assessment into law enforcement calls for service. Additional study circles were held in collaboration with the New American Welcome Center and immigrant communities. Most participants acknowledged similar concerns shared from the listening sessions and other study circles. Also noted was that language barriers continue to impact the relationship between immigrant communities and the police. Participants shared that a lack of understanding by police about how their cultural background can uniquely affect them and cause reluctance to have contact law enforcement, such as reporting a crime. Another challenge is lack of information available available to them about the role of local police since individuals from other countries or cultures may perceive, perceive police differently. Participants supported the need for a liaison officer to help advance cultural understanding and trust building. 
In addition to the listening sessions and study circles, an online questionnaire was developed through the city's website to provide additional flexibility for the public to provide input on public safety and policing services. The general themes of the respondents' comments were consistent with the public comment heard during the listening sessions and study circles, including improving race relations and equity, allocating resources from the police department to social service and mental health needs, reducing the scope of responsibility from the department, officer accountability and improvements to the citizen review complaint process, and to continue to build trust and work collaboratively with community organizations to establish common goals and initiatives. Additional input included support for law enforcement and the importance of their role in the community, with input indicating a concern over the rise in violent crime, most notably shootings, and the need to maintain public safety. Police employee input. Input was also solicited from employees of the Champaign Police Department during three internal Zoom meetings with the Chief of Police and Command Staff. During these meetings, employees were asked to share their perspectives on the challenges and opportunities facing law enforcement. As it relates to daily operations, police administration and officers acknowledge there has been an increased demand for police services over time, some of which may not be appropriate for law enforcement to serve as the first responder. Support for co-responder models exist internally if they can be done so safely and efficiently. There is a general concern regarding the impact of police reform and how it may affect overall public safety. Recruitment and retention. Staffing levels remain a concern for employees. Currently officer strength of the department is 125. There are 28 officer positions that are termed unserviceable or in other words, a full-time police officer position that is not available for full duty. The department also recognizes the need to improve diversity within the workforce through recruitment and hiring of more females and racial ethnic minorities. And to conclude the police employee input, officer safety and wellness was discussed. Under the increasing scrutiny and pressures facing law enforcement and the nature of their daily work, Officers expressed that additional resources should be explored to ensure the physical, mental, and emotional health and the safety of officers and their families. Because officers are exposed to a wide range of stressors as part of their daily routines, mental and physical health checkups should be made available on an ongoing basis to help identify any early warning signs for resources that officers may need. And prior to turning the presentation back over to Chief of Police Anthony Cobb, I would like to sincerely thank the community members and city staff for their individual time, effort, and input during these processes. Chief Cobb. Thank you, Deputy Petrelli. An important question currently being asked by our community is how can we make sure that the proper care is being provided for an individual in need? When community members place an emergency call for service, emergency services, that can be dispatched are either emergency medical, fire, or police. Often when the situation does not warrant a medical or fire response, the police are dispatched to the call. Regardless of whether it is a cr criminal in nature, this has put the police in the position of being the first responder to a wide variety of urgent problems or needs where other expertise might be better or more appropriate. One local pilot program to address this issue is the One Door Initiative that the City of Urbana is looking to begin this year. One Door 
is a 24-hour convenient care for non-medical crisis open to anyone in the community, including our most vulnerable citizens. The individual in crisis will be offered stabilization and a referral to the appropriate specialist for treatment. The goals of the One Door program are to provide an alternative to arrests or emergency room admissions. Local law enforcement is partnering with Rosecrans and healthcare providers, and the hope is that if the pilot program in Urbana is successful, One Door will be expanded to include the city of Champaign. The Champaign Police Department will continue to collaborate and support the Urbana pilot and will share additional information with the city council as it becomes available. The city of Champaign's citizen review subcommittee, CRS, is, is responsible for promoting public confidence and the professionalism and accountability of the police department and to make policy recommendations to improve community policing relations. In October, 2020, following a 2019 recommendation by the Citizen Review Subcommittee, the Police Department's Internal Affairs Complaint Procedure Policy was updated to improve the existing police complaint process by offering mediation as a meaningful option to resolve conflicts that community and police may have about their interactions with each other. The changes created the Community Mediation Program to date the community mediation program has been utilized on one occasion. That was January 12, 2021, which led to a successful resolution. The department has additionally extended the timeframes to submit a formal complaint from 30 days to 60 days. The CRS provides annual recommendations to the chief of police for consideration. Their most recent recommendations were presented in November, 2020. Most of this year's recommendation will require council input and direction. As the community has grown, the city has seen increased demand for baseline police services and a rise in violent crime. With only a modest growth of police officers since 1995, the department has noticed two specific trends that impact our community and the inability to engage with our citizens effectively. Call stacking, and call saturation occurs when the demands for police services are greater than the police resources available. This results in longer wait time for citizens and the inability for law enforcement to proactively address crime. Based upon community input, members of the Champaign community want the city to consider alternative services models to provide public safety services. Focusing police resources on crime prevention and enforcement and calling upon other trained professionals to provide other crisis intervention services. To help accomplish this, the department recommends evaluation of calls to service, assessing trends and the priority classification that are associated with call for demand. In 2018, in 2019, and 2020, approximately 50% of calls for service were for priority three calls which are generally order maintenance or quality of life issues, such as loud music or parking complaints, which indicates a large volume of police response for service where there is no perceived threat or identify injury or damage to person or property. A deeper evaluation into the distribution of calls for service can provide valuable data 
as council consider future changes to city ordinances and police policies and procedures. This process can also include additional public and neighborhood engagement prior to bringing policy recommendation forward for future council consideration. The police department is also proposing that the city explore the creation of community service officers. Having a liaison or advocate to improve the connection between residents and sworn law enforcement was often suggested by members of the community during the recent public engagement process. Community service officers would be civilian employees who coordinate with the patrol division to perform a limited range of responsibilities designed to support the department's operations. If council determines that these positions should be a part of the city's public safety services, community service officers could also be responsible for responding to and investigating non-criminal, non-violent, order maintenance and quality of life calls. If council is interested in exploring this concept further, staff will conduct additional research on community service models across the country and schedule a future study session for further discussion and consideration. As part of the state legislation on police reform, new in-service training requirements for police officers, including training on implicit bias, racial and ethnic sensitivity, and law updates on emergency medical response and officer wellness and mental health, the extent to which the required training will be provided and implemented by the state is unknown. Staff will be monitoring whether a mandated training curriculum will be implemented and provided by the state, as well as the extent to which the city will have the discretion to establish its training priorities and still meet statutory requirements. Even upon implementation of the new statute mandated training requirements, the city may elect to pursue additional training in areas identified by community input, including improved communication techniques and the principles within the NAACP ILACP share principles agreement. And finally, community input into the future of policing and public safety will require ongoing dialogue between the city, its residents, and the stakeholders. Accordingly, the police department recommends implementing new strategies to cultivate trust, communication, and improve community police partnerships. The department is recommending learning more about the opinions of persons that serve in a timely manner as suggested by citizens. One possible method to accomplish this is by offering a survey for individuals to take immediately following interaction with a police officer. The goal of such a survey would be to identify priorities or opportunities for improvement and measure general trends and customer satisfaction to become more responsive to our community needs. More police departments are beginning to provide a business card or handout for officers to give to individuals involved in police interaction that contain a QR code. This QR code provides easy access to an online survey, which an individual can then go to and provide feedback on the services they receive. At this time, we would like to take the opportunity to open up the presentation for questions or comments from council. Thank you, Chief. Are there any technical questions? Nobody? Council Member Stock. Yeah, um, in the report it said um, 
I'm just going to read it, uh, that there's an increased demand for service, um, some of which may not be appropriate for law enforcement to serve as a first responder. Can you give any examples of what that might look like, just to have a little bit better understanding of what we're saying there? Yes. Uh, when you look at those type of calls for service, mental health was a big area in which uh, the community would ask that we would work or have a, at least a co-responder model in which you would get uh, mental health clinician to respond with the officer. Uh, is it better if they can go in place of the officer or will they go in a, a, a together? That's all debatable how we put it together. Cahoots is a model that a lot of people um, talk about and recognize at the national level. Uh, it's one that's out, I think, in Eugene, Oregon, um, similar to the Coast model that the University Police Department just start embarking upon. But it's some type of dual response model because it's probably the best example of a co-responder model. Thank you. Um, also, so I there was an article in the paper on Sunday about this a little bit, but what local departments in our area have social workers? Is that a model that we could look at um, either as during an incident or maybe even better as a follow-up measure? Most departments that are for social workers right now, the Rancho Police Department probably had one of the longest and they've had it for several years now. Shamrock County Sheriff's Office just received funding They're in the process trying to implement a social worker. Uh, University of Illinois Police Department just recently implemented a social worker. My understanding of both of those programs with social worker, they'll be doing post-incident and follow-up. Uh, they're not going out with the officers to the scene primarily, but they'll be helping to connect with services and deal with things on the back end. That's similar to the one-door concept that the city of Champaign and the city of Urbana are looking at. Well, we'll use Rosecrans as the case agent or case example to work with us to deal with it. Initially, those programs will be coming on board to deal with things on the back end. But ideally, we would like to get some type of co-responder model where it's 24-7 officers off shift responding with someone uh, from a clinician standpoint and deal with it proactively on the front side of it. But it'll take a time, uh, a while before we can get up speed on something like that. And then... Um Another question I had about officer um, staffing. So I know we've done some stuff in the past about hiring a recruiting firm or talking about changing the way we do testing and things like that. What are, are we doing? Do we have any programs in place? Are we thinking about anything to deal with officer retention and low morale type of issues in terms of trying to keep the ones we have instead of this constant kind of influx and outflux of officers? That's difficult. There's several things we tried uh, and we're working with HR on trying to increase recruitment and working with them to trying to make sure we're brought in, in our approach to get good qualified people to come at us, uh, to come on board with our agency. But far as um, a program that exists to increase morale, as you were stating, or a, a program to exist with retention, I'm not aware of one um, that's out um, but we can look and research and see if we can find something, but I'm not aware of one. Okay. Do we, um, do we do any kind of like exit interviews with officers that are leaving in terms of reasons why they're leaving or are there things that maybe they would have stayed or, or, or anything like that? I'm just worried about we, if we have this constant, there's this constant cycle and then we wind up paying money. It takes a year to get an officer on the street by the time they go through PTI and all that kind of stuff. So I, it seems like retention might be something that we might want to look at if there's other departments locally or, or nationally that are have put in programs into place. Because I know that I, I can't imagine with the state of the world of law enforcement that a lot of departments are probably hemorrhaging 
um, officers right now and trying to find ways to keep the ones we have. No, I agree yeah. with you. Farmers are dealing with this issue. Um, we do do exit interviews and we do talk with employees as they're leaving. Uh, a lot of our uh, recent loss with the retirement and separation of that, we've had a few people who chose to get out of the profession altogether. Um, we're kind of in the sweet spot far as um, we've always been a destination police department and we've had a lot of people who've come here and we've had vibrant and rich careers here and it's time for them to go on and do other things in life and enjoy their family. Um, so we're still dealing with some of that. Um, we do have some officers that do not make it through the training process, unfortunately. Um, and we have to work our way around those issues as well. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Councilmember Confetti. Thank you, Your Honor. Um, I appreciated um, all the information. I did have just a couple of follow-up questions, Chief. Um, when you were talking about the um, call to service data, and this um, also goes along with the co-responder model, the priority three calls um, that you were referring to, do we have data that shows um, in response to those calls, the times in which those calls may escalate to something more or when they are um, put in as a priority three, it's because they are a nonviolent or a, um, a call that would not require a police officer on site per se. A priority three call is a call that comes in. It's generally a call that um, is not violent in nature. It's generally a call uh, for service, more meat complaining. There's an issue. It could be a low degree of uh, disagreement, but maybe not necessarily criminal in nature. Uh, priority three are what we call order maintenance type calls. Right. I, I, I'm sorry to interrupt. I understand how they come in. I'm just saying in case they escalate to something beyond that priority three, they may come in at that level, but then they turn into something more. I'm looking for that data in which um, somebody is dispatched where there's no police officer, but suddenly a police officer is needed. Yes, I would have to get with Metcalf to find out if they do have that data, but generally if something escalates, then they escalate the call in priority and it'll change from a three to a two or one based on what is occurring there. Uh, and calls are reclassified uh, regularly by Metcalf if circumstances are changing. Uh, so some call takers are on the line with them depending on the call and they can make change immediately or the person has to call back to Metcalf and say circumstances have changed, but we can work with Metcalf to find out what that data is. Okay, thank you, but, but you did answer my question that it typically is reclassified. So thank you for that. Um, and then um, one more question I had was um, in the data from the listening sessions, there was discussion about the community advocate um, being a liaison. And was that uh, in those discussions, were they considering that to be something that would be staffed as police staff? as a liaison or was there a discussion that it might be housed um, in with some other agency in the in the city um, or would that be that liaison be a just a um, a somebody that is uh, 
non uh, not an officer but working for the police station for the police defer to uh tom yalich could you take that question for us as far as what was said in that session yeah thank you chief um i think a lot of it was general discussion that a need that there's a need that it has to exist that we need a liaison or advocate person or program to help connect law enforcement um, to other sort of social service needs. What that looks like um, wasn't specifically discussed in detail. That is something we can research and what the best practices are around that in other areas and other cities. Um, I think some community members would say that it would make sense to fall outside the scope of the police agency. And some would say it would make sense to fall within the scope of the police agency because they would have to work with us directly around some of those calls. Um, so a lot of general discussion around it, um, but in terms of what that framework looks like would require more research. Okay, thank you so much, appreciate it. That's all I had. Councilmember Gladney. Thank you. Um, thank you, Chief, for the presentation. Uh, I had a question about the community service officers. Um, <laughs> this may be a dumb question, but in their title as officers. So are they, even though they're, I guess, civilians, are they still police officers per se? No, they're not exactly police officers. They wouldn't be sworn. There will be civilian positions, but they would be called upon to go out and deal with um, the priority three type calls, um, the order maintenance type calls in order to free up the police officers to deal with the higher priority um, calls, things that are more criminal in nature and then do the engagement that our citizens been asking for. A lot of citizens that ask, I'd like to meet the officer before I dial 911 have emergency in my house. It allows us to be able to free them up. Uh, community service officer can deal with, um, like I said, loud music, parking complaints. They can deal with uh, low hanging uh, issues, probably maybe some traffic direction, helping around those type of calls. Uh, they can do the meet complaint and stuff. Um, they can do some low and far as priority uh, processing of crime scenes uh, in which we could train them to do some things and free the officers up so they uh, can be available to deal with the issues on uh, crime. Um, do you think these officers would be fitted with body cams? That is possible. I mean, it's how we craft the program and put it together, if we wanted these civilian positions to have body cameras to record their interaction with the public. Um, that's certainly, I think, something we probably could do. Um, we have to discuss about, I think it's a policy decision. I'm not aware of a legality, but I'll defer to legal for that. Okay, uh, perhaps another stupid question, but uh, would they be armed or would they be unarmed? Community service officers are not sworn. They will not be allowed to carry weapons. Okay. They will be completely unarmed. There will be civilian position. Um, they may have a few tools. Uh, depends on how we craft it and how we put the position together and how do we imagine or envision uh, these uh, positions working within our organization. Okay. Uh, community relations has come up. Um, I'm just curious. We had um, an LGBT community uh, liaison with the, within the police department and what's the status of that now? I know the person doing it uh, left. Uh, do we have someone doing that now or what's the status of that? We do still have someone assigned to when Deputy Chief Daniels um, retired and left. Uh, he turned those duties over uh, and we had two officers step up. And I'll be honest with you, I, I couldn't tell you the name right now. I'm drawing a blank. And Deputy Chief, why don't you guys help me out here? Who's doing the liaison stuff now? 
My understanding is I believe it's Lieutenant Rath. Okay. Okay. Uh, thank you. Anyone else? Councilmember Beck. Councilmember, I believe you're still muted. Sorry, I must have hit it twice. Thank you. Um, so uh, I'm wondering uh, about body cams. Um, so I know that our officers wear them and they also have dash cams. And I'm wondering if you can tell me if our detectives also wear body cams. Yes, our detectives do have body cameras uh, available to them. Deputy Schaefer, you want to respond first when they use it? Because our detectives have a little bit of a different responsibility, they're still uh, tasked with the investigation of crimes and they are still sworn. And therefore, um, if you're a sworn member with the police department, you do have an issued body cam and detectives do wear that as course in their normal day-to-day -day activities when interacting or conducting enforcement uh, activities within the city. Okay. And um, can you tell me what, and maybe this is a question for you or I, I, maybe it's for chief. Um, can you tell me what, how we use body camera footage, um, outside of the, if there was a question of what occurred, then going back and reviewing it, is there any other review process that we do of body camera or, or, um, dash camera video that we use to assess ways that we can do things differently? Have we done that at all? Just sort of like an audit of camera. Yes, Deb Chief Petrillo, you want to talk through that? Uh, he oversees our use of force uh, review. Sure. Some of the most common reviews outside of a typical review, um, you know, to review an incident and type a report or uh, as part of assessing a crime scene and looking at video to see what, what it may have looked like when you arrived from uh, apart from the officer part of that. It's typically reviewed for use of force incidents. All use of force incidents will be reviewed and that's all body worn camera and in-car camera footage associated with that incident. And that video is reviewed at every level beginning with the officer's supervisor or the sergeant supervisor through the lieutenant deputy chief and then through the use of force review board the civilian use force review board and then that makes it to the chief level in addition to that um, video that's related to any kind, any kind of allegation of misconduct is reviewed as part of the internal affairs procedures to determine how to process that allegation as a formal complaint it would be reviewed by that same supervisory chain of command that I explained. And then that would also be reviewed by the human relations subcommittee, the civilian or citizen review subcommittee. And then in addition to that, there are spot checks done by supervisors to check a number, a random number of videos for their staff. And that is used for both uh, compliance, catch them doing things right. And, excuse me, and those reviews can take um, take place of the supervisor not being able to be everywhere all the time. 
So those are also done as far as spot checks. And Chief, if I miss something, feel free to chime in, but that's the most common reviews I'm aware of. Have we ever used them for a review for a certain kind of call that we've received? So no. maybe a pattern of a certain type of call that comes in. Have we ever gone back to review body camera footage to see how do our officers typically respond in a particular scenario on what, how that might so be different? I, they are reviewed um, sometimes for incident debriefings. And I don't know if that's what you're mentioning specifically, but there are special units that review videos such as for a special weapons and tactics operation or some kind of a, uh, what we term as a felony stop uh, on the street or another incident that deserves debriefing. That call may may entail looking at video as part of the lessons learned and, and info sharing after the fact. But as far as just a broad class or type of call, um, no, there's no process that I'm aware of. Okay. Um, all right. Uh, that's all my questions about body cameras right now. Um, thank you for that. I do have another question though. Um, in the discussions that we had with community members, I know that transparency was an issue that kept coming up. Uh, and I'm what from the notes that I've read over. And I'm wondering if there was any discussion of um, uh, the post, um, like the post, after we've already done post investigation. So we've already done the investigation, we've already investigated the crime and maybe we're sort of assessing all of the information that is has been gathered, sifting through all of the information um, and then there's the victim might be sort of standing in the gap, doesn't know what's going to happen, isn't aware of what's going to be going on with the case in the future. But oftentimes it feels like maybe there's nothing happening, but they're not really clear. And so what was there any discussion about having a, a victim advocate position at all? Did anyone mention that or was there any discussion amongst staff at the police um, about victim advocacy. Tom, do you want to start? Finish up. Yeah, I can, I can take that one, Chief. Uh, generally, yes, that did come up. Um, not in any great detail, but it was mentioned that that would be something that the community would benefit from. Um, I was not in each study circle, so I don't know the depths of the conversations of other study circles went into more depth around that topic, um, which I think would be should be noted in the notes uh, in the attachments to the report. Um, but in the study circles I was in, that was brought up, um, generally referencing that there would be um, a benefit of having um, that advocate uh, for victims, sort of as that post follow up and the status of where things stand um, with their case. Okay. All right. Thank you. Historically. And obviously, historically, victim uh, are offered through the state's attorney's office. Once they review and decide they're going to prosecute, they generally assign someone to work with uh, victims of cases. Uh, so generally, most time those services historically come from there, and we have not traditionally done it within the police department. Uh, so I just want to make sure you're aware of that as well. Yeah, I did know about the state's attorney's office, but that's that's good information for the public too. So thank you. Um, I think that's all I have for now.
Further technical, Councilmember Bricks. So when, I wanna start with training. And so what, what are just sort of the basic requirements from year to year for officers in terms of training? Looks to me like Chief Cubs frozen. Yeah. Chief Trelly. Yes, Councilmember Bricks. I do not have a an exhaustive list of what is required per year per training. I know more generally from the uh, thirty thousand foot view, if you will, that we conduct over twenty one thousand hours of training a year. The state mandates are typically under 10 hours, I believe, per officer per year. And it breaks down into areas such as cultural competency and um, specific subjects that you need to obtain one, two, or three hours in. And once you add up all of those combined, it's typically a minimum state mandate uh, from, the, from the top of my head, about 10 to 12 hours a year. There's other requirements for um, officers as compared to detectives, as compared to administrative staff. So I'm speaking broadly uh, across sworn personnel as a whole. But as far as the, the specific topics, I would have to follow up with you. But there are several criteria mandated by state law. And those are what I believe you're speaking to as the minimum that would be required per year. Okay, and then is there regular, you mentioned um, using body cam footage for um, like when there's incidents and things like that and spot checks, but do you use it as a regular sort of training tool about what works well, what doesn't and using actual examples um, on an ongoing basis as part of sort of in-house training or is there in-house training or is it is it where you're going to classes or something like that? So as far as using videos for training, I know that they're used in the field training and evaluation program as um, presenting mock calls or a scenario possibly to a recruit officer. They're also used during incident debriefings, especially you know important critical incidents or something where there's a lesson learned. But as far as reviewing videos on a regular basis, the sheer volume of videos that we would typically take in in a week is about five to 7,000 videos. So to review that would be pretty time consuming. And <clears throat> as far as I know, um, the spot checks, if you will, are what's conducted most of the time unless an officer was put on like a performance improvement plan for a specific performance category, then those videos may be reviewed more often for that specific employee. Okay. And then on a sort of a similar but different note, um, I noticed that there was officer well-being as part of the discussion as well. And so is there a physical and a mental health requirement or checks every year? And then is there something specifically done in terms of mental health, like after an incident with continual follow-up to make sure that officers are in a good space to do their jobs? 
So there is medical testing available and that's contractual per year for the Fraternal Order of Police employees. As far as psychological, there is a psychological um, component to our hiring process. And the only time I'm aware if, that that would be repeated would be at the city's request and some kind of fitness evaluation. Or if you take a different position such as uh, special weapons and tactics or a sniper position on that team, then they typically get another psychological evaluation as part of that hiring process. In addition to that, um, let me think, uh, after a major incident, it is possible that there would be um, a psychological exam ordered uh, for specific incidents. Okay. Yeah. And that usually involves the use of force, major use of force, discharging of a firearm. Uh, and then sometimes we may bring in counselors to help with a debriefing at a critical incident. That's genius. Some type of incident may involve some type of traumatic, and we're talking death, something of that nature, where we may have a counselor come in and debrief with the entire group. Okay. Um, one of the things that doc, Dr. Dixon had written after the listening sessions is, it is, as part of his summary is it seems that you know, there's a lot of things that Champaign Police is already doing um, that a lot of the community doesn't know about. And they were asking for certain things to be done and they are already in place. Um, and, and he indicated that he didn't know whether or not it was just a, a PR effort or if it was an, impl an implementation issue. And so is there any sort of analysis um, about or any plans in place to try to promote the programs that are already in place or the types of trainings or more educational things for the community so they know what police are already doing? Um, or it, are we looking into, okay, if we say we're doing these things and the public doesn't think we are, where's the, where's the disconnect? Is it PR or is it implementation? Are you are you breaking that down and looking at those types of things as part of this process? We're starting to break that down and look at it um, to try to figure out where best we can try to respond and get the biggest bang for our effort. Um, with this said, I think it's more probably more PRs, the initial analysis, but we still have a lot of work to do in the area to look at what more can we, how, how can we better disseminate information, educate our public on what we're doing uh, and how can we, bridge the gap in areas where our public see us falling short at. Okay. And then um, in terms of the community engagement, if the priority three calls are potentially sent to a different type of officer than patrol, um, and if the goal is to increase community engagement, is the current level of priority one and two calls, um, is it, is it possible to do anything more with the current level of, or the current number of officers that we have? So even if you reduce some of the workload, is it enough for them to be able to do um, a really important piece of their job, which is the community relations piece? Right now we're looking at our current staffing. If, if our call load dropped in half uh, and basis, that's what we're looking at. Uh, would the resources we currently have be enough to do that? We need to do more analysis on that. That's where the staff study and looking at the numbers will shake out at. Um, and then also boils down to 
what direction council want, how much undevoted uh, time do we want our employees to be available and accessible to the community for the engagement stuff. Um, is it 30 minutes per hour or is it 45 minutes per hour or if it's just only 15 minutes? Uh, right now, uh, with our current staff and our officers are going call to call to call and they just don't have the time to do the things that we've heard from the public process from the engagement that our public would like to see them do and they're freed up to do, uh, but the calls keep them busy so they're not able to. Okay, thank you. Who's next? Technical questions? Councilmember Kyles. Thank you. Uh, just one quick question. Uh, a lot of questions have already been answered, um, but what would be some of the uh, um, different ways or, I mean, did you find that Zoom was helpful in bringing uh, new uh, people to the conversation? Uh, would that be something that we would uh, do in the future, uh, even post pandemic? I think Zoom is a viable tool that can be used, um, but I also think some people prefer in person. Uh, I do think a combination can be helpful. I see uh, Mr. Yellich popped on. Would you want to add something? Uh, yeah, I think you were, you were touching on it, Chief. Yeah, I think we learned a lot going through Zoom. It was our first time really doing engagement that way. Um, and I think we learned a lot just as a different vehicle to be able to reach our different audiences who like participating through Zoom um, versus in person. So I think it's fair to say that moving forward, we'll continue to keep um, Zoom in our back pocket as a way to be able to, to reach the community. Yeah, what that, and, and my, my piece is more to the lines of uh, community engagement and bringing uh, individuals, particularly uh, uh, people that would not be uh, part of the conversation um, that wouldn't show up necessarily to a, um, I don't know, a, 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 a talk if this was on a, a Monday night at six o'clock, or I'm trying to figure out different ways. What are some different ways that we can, you know, engage uh, with our citizens, um, particularly, you know, young people, um, and where there's some ideas from an, because, yeah, I'll stop there. I'm trying to get, how do we continue to increase uh, public participation? How do we build trust? Like we, you know, we talk about that. Uh, what are some of the things that, things that, you know, I know we talked about having the uh, CRS officers um, as a way to, to build trust. What are some of the other ways that we can, you know, work to continue to keep dialogue open in our community amongst both police and citizens? I must have missed it. I'm not sure if you asked a question or was that with a statement, sir? Uh, I was more so, I guess, I guess maybe that's a long-winded question. How, what are some alternative ways to increase public engagement? I mean, alternative ways is, and we're going to try to reach people wherever they're at. Um, because of the pandemic, Zoom became our major platform. Um, but going out, try to meet them. Um, 
but in person, we weren't in the midst of a pandemic. I'm sure we would hold around the city to try to go into neighborhoods. We would try to piggyback on and meet where uh, other groups are already meeting at, whether join a church group who's having a meeting, as well as uh, work with our other partners within the city, whether it be neighbor services. Um, you pick the group, we'll probably could come out and talk with them if they're open to having a conversation with us. Um, but like I said, most for the most part, during this process, we were relegated to Zoom. Um, we did make an effort to be broad and expansive. We had youth uh, focus groups. We had uh, immigrant focus groups. Um, we did as much as we possibly can to reach the public, some with police officers in it, some with no one from the police department involved with it, and allowing city staff to lead those conversations or be there to capture the notes. We just wanted to get the information. And so we're open to any way we can. I see the city manager came on. Thank you, Chief. I just wanted to add, Councilmember Kyles, that in addition to what we're trying to do now, there's a recognition um, that there are all these new technology tools out there. Um, there are so many new software products coming out on the market all the time about doing engagement and using technology to kind of reach other people that, you know, I think long term as a city, we need to explore multiple ways. Like when is old school and doing meetings and expecting people to like come out and attend in-person events the most effective way? And when are there um, ways that maybe using technology where people could maybe just give us quick input on various issues before council or being considered in the community? So separate from this conversation, we do have an internal group that is starting to take a look at some of the emerging products specifically focused on community engagement that are available in the marketplace that are starting to be tested and used in other communities to get very much at that question because we need to start doing engagement in a way that works for our 21st century communities. Thank you. Who else has technical questions? Councilmember Foreman. Um, Chief Cobb, I just had a few questions for you, um, but I wanted to start with, can you tell me what is the time it takes the police to get to a level one phone call? Time it takes to get to a priority one phone call? I cannot tell you. I mean, it's all dependent upon location and officer when they're dispatched. Priority one means we're going to stop whatever we're doing. We're going to flip any available unit within the city to respond. Um, so if the officer's in that beat and closer, they're going to get there pretty quickly. If the officer had to come across town, um, that priority, if it's, it's priority one, um, we're gonna send them. Officer could be at the station writing a report, um, but if it's priority one, they will stop what they're doing at the station and go to the call. But we'll free resources up to get there. If not, then we'll call for mutual aid and ask for other uh, jurisdictions to assist us with that. And council member, if I could chime in, I just wanna note that it may be interesting to see um, that data when we analyze it a little bit closer because with the new implementation of METCAD's uh, dispatching software, it implemented proximity dispatching because the officers are visible on a map, if you will, by the software. And for priority one and two calls, they are dispatching by proximity to where they used to be dispatched, like the chief said, by beat, et cetera. So it may take some time to see the impact of that, to see if it truly does increase efficiency and response time. 
but that was newly implemented on the 19th of January. So it's not very old yet. Thank you. That is a nice update. Um, so I had a question about the community officers. So chief, you said something about quality of life. And so I really wanted to ask you when we say that, do you mean like welfare checks for people who may need resources that necessarily don't necessarily meet with the police? Like I kind of wanted you to tell a little bit about what you envisioned or what you heard from the community as far as that. When I referenced or spoke about quality of life issues, quality of life issues are things that is impactful to the citizen that's calling at the time. And that varied from citizens to citizen. Uh, quality of life for me, because I might have a newborn at home and someone driving through my block uh, with their music playing really loud, waking my children up at seven o'clock in the evening time is a quality of life issue with me. And I want the police to do something about it. And that's more urgent for me uh, because I have a newborn at home and I'm not getting much sleep. Uh, so that's impactful from the citizen point of view. All the calls are important, um, but like I said, when we're talking about quality of life, those are, Gene, the calls where we want to make sure we get officers freed up to deal with the priority three, have that community service officer address that, and let the officers be available to deal with the higher, uh, more criminal type issues, the uh, shots fired, um, the robberies, things of that nature, and then free them up to do the engagement aspect, building relationships with citizens. Recently, you guys had a call where um, a bank called the police on a customer. And do you envision a community officer responding to that instead of a police officer? Quite potentially, it just depends on the detail and how it's dispatched and what's there. Um, if, if it's dispatched where a person has been disorderly and irate and um, there's a fear someone might get battered this night, you may get a police officer there. But if they're saying, hey, someone is here, and we don't have a trespass issue and there's some type of disagreement too, but no criminal issue, it could be possibly a community service officer. And that's the issue you run with a lot of police issues. The detail as far as the information that the dispatcher gets can determine will it go this way or that way. Uh, the detail will make a difference. Have we talked with Metcat or Ralph Caldwell about improving the dispatch relations with um, the police officers and dispatch? Because a lot of the complaints we've gotten, especially I personally can tell you that I've had a dispatcher tell me that I heard fireworks when they were gunshots. How, how, how can we work on that relationship? Because obviously the police department has little control over, you know, METCAD and we know the dispatchers are very overworked and that is very a uh, difficult situation, but the accuracy of the information that is, you know, put out to the police officers is starting to become a critical part of your calls. Anytime we have an issue or concern with, what the officer may receive from dispatch, we're communicating with the supervisors there. They're doing their quality assurance and looking at it. We always can go back to the tape. Uh, they keep audio recordings of everything from the telephone call coming in, as well as uh, the conversation that happens over the radio. Uh, and there's some things uh, Ralph and his staff deals with the dispatching aspect of it. We deal with our employee aspect of it, as far as what was known, what should have been known, and our responses that go with it. Um, when we talk about the community officers, something that I've heard you talk about significantly in community meetings is the impact social media has on, you know, uh, violent situations and some of the problems we've been seeing with shootings. Do you envision being able to have a community officer uh, that sole purpose is to follow social media? Because I know that's something that the officers haven't been able to do as much as you would have liked if you had a full-time position for that. Right now, we have some officers, we have some of our front desk people, and then we have an analyst 
they all use social media and follow it as best they possibly can to keep up with stuff. I'll defer to Deputy Chief Schaefer to talk more about um, what we do around social media. So Councilwoman Foreman, like the chief mentioned, we do have a crime analysis unit where we have two analysts assigned to that. And part of their responsibility is monitoring that and looking for information that would be uh, uh, beneficial with regard to preventing crime and or um, assisting in the investigation of, of certain criminal offenses. But I would, I would tell you that I think everybody within the department is very familiar with social media, although from, from my side of the department where we have an detectives and investigations are intimately familiar with social media. We frequently use that as an investigative tool and we frequently look at things with regard to social media that are often uh, open source, if you will, information that have been placed on various social media entities that provide information that's of assistance to, um, to criminal investigations and incidents like you mentioned where there are shootings. A lot of that information is posted before, during, and after we've found in previous incidences. So it is an important um, piece of information and one that we um, do not overlook. Um, Chief, I know I've brought this up to you before, but I wanted to bring it up to everybody. Is there any way that the police department can review ordinances that they feel could help with community relations as far as things you believe that we could take off the books that could maybe, you know, lessen the impact of unnecessary stops, things like that? There's always opportunity for us to look at what we're doing. Uh, basically what we're asking for is if we review our calls for service and look at what we're doing as far as the impact, um, that can be incorporating some of the analysis as we look at what is working, what can we do differently? Um, should the police still address or could there be another work group that can address some of the things? Um, for example, a lot of times we get sent to the mental health aspect issues and address that. But if there's a physical health issue, the fire department deals with that. Um, should that go that direction or not, or should it go to a third party? I don't know, but those are all things that we can review. So it is possible that you could review the ordinances to, to see what ordinances we have that we could potentially remove or no longer need. Is there a specific ordinance you're getting at? I mean, I'm there not are, sure. We have ordinances that we use for stop and seizures in order for us to, you know, how we, uh, you know, assign things or how you guys determine how you're going to stop people. You use all type of tools. I don't have them all written down, but I mean, one example is when I called to tell you about somebody who was pulled over at the state uh, railroad tracks and you told me that they had probable cause to pull that car over. If that probable cause is a light being out, you know, is there something we can do to stop? unnecessary probable cause stops which is what I'm asking are there ordinances that we can review that we can where we can actually because I do believe that those type of stops when they come up with nothing they actually do impact community relations and so I'm wondering about those type of stops that's what I'm asking now, what I think you're getting at is pretextual stops there are some things we can do to review around that but recognize um, the stops that you refer for as the uh, example you gave that's the Illinois vehicle code um, that's traffic law. Um, the Illinois Vehicle Code is um, the laws of the state of Illinois, and these are violations of the law. Uh, are you asking me to direct officers not to enforce the Illinois Vehicle Code? Um, that that, oh, that I'm might be asking about city ordinances, the city ordinances that the city has that we have you go out and enforce. There are there ordinances that we can review that can not that can lessen our the way that we interact with citizens when we have negative stops 
with citizens that can be unnecessary. If you're reviewing stops, I'm sure that there have been times when you reviewed something and it's tied into an ordinance why it was allowed to be. Not necessarily a vehicle code, not a good example, I apologize. City ordinance is what I'm referring to. Maybe a city attorney question, but. No, Councilman Foreman, uh, it's well within council preview to review any city ordinance and determine its effectiveness, if you want to keep it or not. Um, I believe that, that that is your authority. Um, the majority of things I, I think you're getting at is probably more things that the officers, they enforce more state and, and, and traffic ordinances than they do probably city. Uh, but yes, it's within council preview to review any ordinance and decide if you want to keep it or not. Is there any way that we can get a survey of the officers so that we can find out how they're doing as employees, but also I would like to hear from them about the things they see in the community as they are going to calls when people sometimes are at their worst that they believe that we are not doing as a community that we can that we can change. I would like to know if we can do a survey of police officers. Yes, um, we can survey officers. Last question. You have a use of force uh, committee that you appoint people to, and I was just wondering, are there any positions open on that board, or what is the status of, you know, any things on that board? Yes, ma'am, we do have a use of force uh, review committee. Um, there are vacant positions that we do need to fill on that board, um, but we do have a citizens, uh, six citizens are assigned to that board, and we have two positions open that we need to fill. Do we have a makeup of that of that citizen board that you that you can provide, you know, of it's who's it made up of, so we can determine, yes. you know. Yes, I can get names of who's there. Is there other breakdown? Would you like to see? I'm guessing you would like to see um, male, female, as well as race and things of that nature. Yes, ma'am, we can get that broken down sent to you. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Anybody else? I just had, as I as I looked at the information, and um, I think Councilmember Bricks's question made me think about it. I've had a couple of companies that have approached me that say that they have software programs that actually analyze police body cam. Uh, footage and they break it into categories and and try to organize it in a way then that would be helpful for us to review those interactions. Have we looked at any of those types of possibilities or investigated any of those companies since I, under I, I get that the volume of what we get is too overwhelming for anybody to sit down and go through it ourselves, but maybe there's some artificial intelligence that could help us. Yes, we started exploring. We've met with one vendor uh, to look at what they had available. Um, we just done some preliminary inquiries into the area right now with all the turnover and transition um, and new stuff that are coming in based on the reform bill that was passed at the state level. Staff is at their um, breaking point to some degree, trying to address those issues as well as the internal issues around staffing issues that we're dealing with. Okay, but it is something you're aware of and are considering. Yes, ma'am. Okay. Um, Councilmember Stock. 
Sorry, that just jogged my memory of another question. Um, Chief, at what point, with the amount of vacancies we have already, at what point are we at a critical level, or maybe we're there already? I'm just thinking if we had, I don't know, three investigators leave and two sergeants retire and two more patrol. Like, at what point can are, are we going to have trouble servicing our community in terms of staffing because we are so low on staffing? Does that make sense? It does make sense. Uh, it all depends on where the losses occur at, um, but we're staffing concerns that we're, we're concerned about. Um, we're not far from where we may get to the point where it may be difficult for us to maintain our 10 hour schedule. And we may have to look at an alternative schedule. Um, we're, uh, I'll have to actually probably defer to Deputy Petrelli. He's been doing more analysis on that. Tom, could you answer that question, please? Sure. In respect to the critical staffing level for the patrol division, as Chief alluded to, that we would look at an alternate shift schedule other than the 10-hour schedule, the straight for 10 hours, is about 55 full-time officers that can report to work in a uniform and uh, be utilized as full-service officers. So 55, according to the latest staff study, um, resource allocation that we went through is what was determined to, to be the number. So as a follow-up to that, so if, I don't know, we had people in, investig in, in higher level positions, sergeants, investigations, lieutenants, are we at the point where it's going to be hard to even have enough people to move up into those positions? Does that make sense? I'm kind of worried about our down our baseline patrol, but then also is our baseline patrol such that it's we don't have enough people to move vertically into other positions that we also need people in investigations or whatever other area? Basically, we do have um, positions of investigation. There are a couple vacancies upstairs. There's a couple SRO vacancies as well. Um, we could flatten down and push more down in patrol as we need be in order to maintain our baseline services to make sure patrol stays at the numbers that we would like from them to be at. Um, like I said, Deputy Petrelli alluded, 55 is probably our breakneck number. Um, right now, uh, we're able to function. We're looking at a little bit of restructuring within um, the operational support division that will offer up additional resources that are already within that division that can help out with some investigative and on-call. Uh, so there's some things that we're already have in the works to uh, strengthen those numbers, but at the same time, uh, just trying to maintain our numbers in a patrol division without pulling more resources out of there to put into investigations. Thank you. All right, are we done with technical questions? I'm gonna open it up to the audience. Audience members can raise their hand in the Zoom if you wish to be recognized, Deputy Mayor Bruno will recognize you. Please state your name and city of residence and limit your comments to five minutes or less. I'm gonna turn the microphone on for Brian Dunn. My name is Brian Dunn from Champaign. Um, you know, looking over the report, there's a lot of great stuff in here. I loved that there was youth input and collaboration with the New American Welcome Center. Um, I especially love the call for community service officers, though I think the optics of such a service kind of needs work. They shouldn't be referred to as officers at all, um, and they shouldn't have any carceral powers either. 
And if they're working on things like emergency vehicle uh, breakdowns, welfare checks, you know, uh, acts of vandalism or special event assistance, then they can be detached from the injustice system entirely. And, you know, I, I did take issue with the summary of the report. You know, the summary uses a lot of passive tones and language when describing events that caused local outrage towards police, focusing on the deaths and uh, of individuals who became national figures while ignoring, you know, all but one of the atrocities committed by our own department, failing to acknowledge Richie Turner or, you know, the many other local citizens that suffered death and abuse at the hands of our police. And it simultaneously ignored the fact that this isn't just about, you know, police murders, but it's also about a system that perpetrates harm that can be drawn, you know, pretty strictly along lines of class and race here locally. It's, I've seen this whole like skirting of the issue, trying to make it kind of like a national thing that's, you know, it's only a, a thing here because of national things, but it's, it's really the community that we're focusing on and needing, you know, to support. And, you know, it, it also, when it did talk about uh, Kiwan Carrington, it, it just, especially during the, the oral part of the presentation tonight, but also just reading the report, you know, it uses this language like police officer involved shooting to vaguely describe what was actually an officer killing a child. And until local police are willing to hold themselves accountable, look at the process of policing critically to address racial trauma, which uh, CU Try has a great post on today. Um, I don't believe that they're gonna meet their goal of improving community relations. On page nine, uh, the wording goes, it is important to understand the history of policing that law enforcement policies and systems may have led to unjustified desperate impacts against black slash African-Americans, end quote. Uh, this is, you know, including this on a report is like including carbon emissions may lead to global warming. Person-to-person -person interactions may lead to uh, transmitting COVID. We know how Black community members have been unjustly targeted. We have the anecdotes and we also have the data to prove as much. And it would be very helpful if it was spoken about this way. Language is important. I'm probably not going to have enough time for all this. I'll be back during general comment. But, you know, much of the talk of being conscious of police community power dynamics and the need for community policing. You know, all that is written about in this textbook that I use as a mouse pad from the Police Training Institute from 1972. We've heard this before, simply being conscious of this or training in these areas obviously will not lead to the systemic changes we need. If we need uh, more funds for training, which this report kind of suggested, uh, maybe we can sell off all the tear gas. This report does not mentioned demilitarizing the police at all except for in the survey comments and you know why was the why was the public input open to police seemingly having having police visibly present in every study circle part of every listening session but the police employee input was not open at all you know from that input uh, i can quote support for co-responder models exists internally if they can be done safely and efficiently you know they're worried about that but they're not worried about doing their current job safely and efficiently for all community members and from page 13 under the increasing scrutiny and pressures facing law enforcement and the nature of their work officers expressed that additional resources should be explored to ensure physical mental uh, emotional health uh, yes 
everyone in the community deserves these resources. But when we're spending close to $30 million on police, we don't have much funding to make these things available to everyone because nurses need that, teachers need that, grocery store employees need that. And that is what activists have been calling for this whole time. The changes that we're calling for are going to help police officers. Like we're, it's, we're trying to help the entire community. And so Dr. Nixon, he noted, actually I'm just gonna cut it off there and I'll be back for a general comment, thank you. Thank you. I'm going to turn the microphone on for Alan Max Axelrod. Thank you, Tom Bruno. Can you hear me? Yes. All right, Alan Max Axelrod in Urbana. Um, one of the things that I want to say here is that um, a survey of the people who have been systemically failed uh, would be useful too. Um, and when I say that, I mean. I don't see first followers in the summary report, and that could just be because it's a summary report. Um, I don't see any um, mention of incarcerated. In fact, the word only appears once um, in the report, according to the search feature, uh, once you download the PDF. So I'd like to suggest, and what skepticism exists, no one can get rid of, but I would like to suggest interviewing and getting survey data on how the city could do better by the people who have found themselves in the worst spots. Because, um, well, put quite simply, people who our current policies work for aren't going to be necessarily intuiting how to improve it. Uh, the people who have been severely punished will. Similarly, just as I told the city of Urbana, uh, I had joined the board of Illini Fighting Hunger in 2017 with the goal of trying to get them to um, meaningfully collect, connect to other um, resources in the community. That is to say, there are predictable gathering points of people who are struggling and if you want to include them, you need just simply approach the nearest food pantries. Similarly, uh, there are quite a lot of chronically unhoused members in our community. We all know where they gather, besides the facts of the community suite, but I highly recommend that you talk to them. Um, in terms of gathering this information, not necessarily sending a police officer to say hello. Um, the, I'm, I'm struggling to remember the name because there's quite a lot of stuff going on. Score of a W today, it's quite nice. But um, the transit hub in downtown, I forgot the name of the building. Um, I have personally um, talked with quite a few chronically unhoused community members there if you want to include them in a community session for services and things police can do differently, I can think of them. Because I remember a friend of mine who asked me to put him up in a hotel for his birthday. I did. He was in Urbana at the time. 
he left the hotel afterwards and got into a brawl and was incarcerated for months. Maybe that's what people do to avoid sleeping on a cement floor. That was Alpha. Many of you are probably familiar with him by now. So again, there are places where you can include people. It's not a technological thing. It is an in-person thing. And there are locations that you can go to. Have a good night. We turn the microphone on for Alexandra. Thank you. Hi, can you all hear me? Yes. yes. Excellent, thank you. Hi, uh, my name is Alex Harmon Threat, and I serve as the new chair of the Citizen Review Subcommittee. I'm glad that the uh, police held those study circles and listening sessions to gain feedback from the community on how to make meaningful improvements to policing in our city. I was fortunate to attend a multiple of these sessions um, and the study circle, so I personally witnessed many of the comments presented in this summary. Um, I was thankful that some of the recommendations from the CRS were reflected in the community as well as in the police statement. However, I found many important community member statements and suggestions were omitted in the police statement uh, that could have a significant impact on the path forward. In particular, a lot of this seems focused on optics, not on outcomes. And we really need to be thinking not about looking good, but about reducing crime and reducing inequity in the justice system. And I wanted to highlight a few issues, um, kind of more specific issues brought up during these conversations that differed um, from things that were brought up by citizens. Um, first, I wanna highlight training. So um, in the document, it mentioned that training, improved training uh, could be beneficial. However, data on implicit, implicit bias training and other training techniques suggest additional training does not necessarily improve outcomes again. Uh, several participants mentioned this specifically during these study sessions uh, and asked that the police consider not just the trainings, but also the incentives um, in terms of behavior um, as a more effective strategy. Uh, but this obviously requires a larger shift in police policy and data recording. For instance, when situations are effectively de-escalated, resulting in no arrest, how are those kinds of metrics recorded, right? Similarly, uh, punishments for uh, violations of protocol and training need to be strict and consistently enforced. The next point I'd like to bring up is community uh, policing. A lot of during the sessions that I attended, many residents actually expressed a lot of concern about community policing, be, again, being more about optics than about outcomes. How do we ensure that the police being in communities doesn't actually increase trauma um, if we can't ensure that the police are not gonna violate their trust? Uh, for many people, increasing the police presence could actually have the opposite effect uh, without, unless we do something on the front end to make sure that we're building the trust before we just kind of like put a police officer in there. Uh, next, uh, police complaints. A lot of residents mentioned uh, during these police sessions and during <laughs> CRS meetings that complaints are often lost, not filed, or not followed up on. Increasing transparency in the complaint process, like making sure that all complaints are actually uh, looked into is really critical. There has to be a better way to track and report on these complaints. Um, and while the police did extend the time uh, for uh, citizens to report by 30 days, um, and that has already, I've seen additional complaints come in uh, past the original 30 day uh, limit, it's still very insufficient for those experiencing severe trauma at the hands of police to be expected to then go in and make a complaint. Um, and this, uh, the CRS for two years has asked for a removal of this limitation for reporting. 
Um, and given that the police were able to um, extend their response time far beyond what was given to citizens, this seems uh, an inequity that really needs to be remedied. Um, as council member Foreman mentioned, we may need to really think very critically about how to reduce community police interactions. Um, excessive presence of uh, police in low income and communities of color uh, for minor infections can breed mistrust. Um, and programs like Open Door actually can help reduce some of those interactions. And we hope that that will help, uh, could be critical to helping um, improving uh, overall community interactions with the police. Um, you know, the CRS is very much in support of uh, diversion of police budget towards programs like this in Champaign. Um, and if uh, similarly, if you're going to create these community service officers, we really want to consider uh, the types of interactions um, that they're going to be having and how that information is going to be used. Uh, Brian Dunn earlier mentioned some good points about this tonight. I'm actually almost out of time. I'm really thankful to live in a city that's committed to moving forward, but we need to be thinking about community solutions rather than police solutions to address many of these problems. I didn't get to all of my things, unfortunately, but thank you. Thank you, and thanks for your service. I'm going to turn the microphone on for Benjamin Bopri. Hi, everybody. Um, didn't really have any. Uh, comments ready before all this. I was kind of overwhelmed by the report. I wanted to thank the staff and the police department for putting in all the work on putting that together. Uh, thank the folks on the Human Relations Commission and the Citizens Review Subcommittee for all the time they put in. I know uh, I, I watch a lot of their meetings on, on Zoom now as opposed to in person, so get to see them uh, do their public work and uh, it's a uh, and uh, working with a lot of public input that you guys deal with each week, uh, they, they get uh, a full fill of it too, uh, with people with real concerns and uh, experiences that are uh, heartbreaking, frustrating, all that. Um, the, uh, the issues raised in this report though, they, uh, they kind of show where we are um, with the police feeling uh, under siege by uh, an ungrateful populace at times. There's a lot of good uh, PR and outreach and whatnot, but it's being undermined by the, the things we're seeing. You know, they talk about bad apples and, you know, how, you know, most of the time cops do the right thing and, you know, help people. And, you know, that's mostly true. But then we see what happens when a bad apple lies and uh, a department in full covers for him. Um, it, it makes it look like uh, organized crime with a badge, you know, this blue line of silence and that, that destroys trust. And there's not much you can do about that here locally because, you know, when that pops up, you know, it's in this city or that city, but it keeps popping up every time a department is exposed, it hurts every department in the United States. And that may not be fair, but that's the reality that we're dealing with right now. You know, they, they're talking about communities of color who are the, you know, often the, the biggest victims of crime, who need the most help, who need police, who need police they can trust, who will come and stop the people 
victimizing them, not re-victimize them. And, you know, in these communities that have been neglected across systems, you know, the police can't fix all this. And, you know, we really need to invest in these communities. So there is less crime generally. So less people are sucked into, you know, bad peer groups or, you know, falling into bad choices. Everybody falls into some bad choices, but it seems like some people have no access to get help. You know, they, they get uh, prison instead of drug treatment. They get, you know, roped into gangs or, you know, violent activity that's policed more heavily if you're a black kid as opposed to a white kid. And you go down a completely different chain of events. And, you know, there's not much police can do about, you know, ignoring, you know, a violent crime. But there's something we can do to make sure that people have the resources they need. Everybody needs mental health services. Most of the industrialized world doesn't live like this with, you know, cops living on a hair trigger if somebody touches their waistband because, you know, someone is, might kill them in a split second if, you know, they do the wrong thing. And, you know, when mistakes are made with uh, people with mental health issues, it's a tragedy when mistakes are made because they saw a, a black kid as a threat and, but not a white guy, you know, th this is just adding up over and over and over again, not because, you know, the police are monsters or bad people necessarily. It's just the, we have so many systems failing right now and we really need to find solutions that address structural and systemic racism Otherwise, we're, we're just going to keep failing parts of our community and sending people out to help that they don't trust because they're also failing them. And that's just heartbreaking. I, I don't know what the best solution is from going here. The open door policy is, you know, it was, seems hopeful, but it seems like a baby step so far. So I wish you the best of luck trying to figure this out. Thank you. I'm gonna turn the microphone on for Alyssa Young. Hello, can you hear me? Okay. Um, good evening, everyone. Again, I'm Alyssa Young and I am the chair of the Human Relations Commission um, just wanted to say thank you to Chief Cobb and his staff for their report on tonight. Um, I do have a couple of concerns I just wanted to speak to. Um, one of those is in particular, um, and most people that know me know that I'm a social worker. Um, <clears throat> and um, of course, so one of my areas of passion is dealing with people who um, might have mental health challenges. And so um, one of the, the issues that I have is bringing the social workers in at the, uh, on the back end, as opposed to in the beginning. Um, that was, to me, that, that um, defeats the purpose. That was um, a lot of what the community's input was um, talking about is that having social workers uh, be able to deal with people who might be um, in a manic um, state because they are trained professionals in knowing how to de-escalate and to talk those people down. But 
uh, my understanding is what I thought I heard tonight was that in the report is that they're talking about um, partnering with Rosecrans and bringing those individuals in um, on the back end. I'm, I'm not sure how um, effective that that will be. Um, so that's, that's the first concern. The other concern um, goes a little bit along with what um, council member Foreman was talking about and that's the use of force board vacancies. Um, I went to take a look at um, their information today and as um, was reported, there are two vacancies. Um, and it looks like at the last meeting that was held, only two of the four people that are on the use of force board attended the last meeting. So I'm just not sure how much um, the public um, participants or the public is any um, having any um, impact um, in what we're asking them to do. And so I know that the use of force um, is a hot topic in the city of Urbana. Um, so I would urge us in the city of Champaign to take a closer look at that and hopefully think about filling those two vacancies um, that are currently open real soon. Thank you very much. Thank you and thank you for your service. Welcome. We'll turn the microphone on for Ann Prisland. <clears throat> thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity to speak to you tonight. <clears throat> I did participate in the listening sessions, the study sessions, and also the survey. And I was very glad to see that the detail of all of those sessions was included in the back two thirds of the report. Uh, there's a lot of robust and <clears throat> quality information there. Excuse me. Um, today, I happened to read the article about the COAST program at the U of I. <clears throat> Sorry. And I'm sure you all did too. I was struck by one quotation from the chief. Being a good partner with the community helps you address issues as they come up because of the trust you are building. Based on that comment and the uh, comments that were uh, made throughout the listening study and survey parts of our involvement, I expected that trust building to be the constant theme throughout this report that we read tonight. Unfortunately, I didn't really feel that, um, especially reading the four recommendations of the police department for things they want to emphasize. And I would like to explain uh, my reason for that. I also would like to request that the council reconsider or place more emphasis on the key themes that Professor Dixon noted. And again, in my view, very little of what he recommended was addressed by the four recommendations. The first one that he talked about was <clears throat> dealt with the whole notion of the co-responder model. I think it's wonderful that the city of Champaign is collaborating with Urbana on the one door program. Unfortunately, we don't have a timetable for that program. And to, to sort of sit there and say, all we're going to do is cooperate, um, didn't seem to me to have the sense of urgency that I think is needed. Uh, there are many models throughout the country of similar programs based and back to what the previous speaker said where people in social services are involved in the front end of encounters that are working effectively. And I would really encourage the city council and the police to review what's going on in their programs 
At the same time, you're waiting to see what one door does and get ready to take action in Champaign. I wanna see an emphasis on we're going to be taking action. Secondly, I want to speak to the issue of the community service officer. That role, um, the description of it was very unclear to me in the report. At first, it seemed that this person was going to be the only one responsible for connecting the community and the police. And then, but the list of potential roles that person might have did not sync up at all. Chief Cobb clarified that tonight when he said, the purpose of that position is to free up police officers. That's fine and probably very important, but I would suggest you not call that person a community service person. That implies that that person and that person alone is responsible for community service. And that role is certainly not a substitute for the co-responder model. The other thing I wanted to comment on is the question of customer surveys. <clears throat> I'm sure you've all filled out surveys as have I. And my immediate reaction is this will be going in the round file and nothing will actually change with a company who has requested my survey. So I think we're all a little jaundiced about that. Uh, Professor Dixon recommended a robust program of ongoing, regular, systematic assessment of policing in our city that would include a wide variety of community input. And I really encourage that approach. A survey can be part of it, but it's certainly not the whole thing. <clears throat> and I would also suggest that the best way to build trust and community relations is to work together to solve problems. Rather than focus on some of the things described in the four recommendations, I would encourage you and the police to consider ways to partner with community members on some of the issues raised in the last two thirds of the report and work together to solve community problems. Thank you. Thank you. We'll turn the microphone on for Bo Barber. Hi, can y'all hear me? Yes. Thank you. Hi, my name is Bo Barber. I'm from Ogden, Illinois. Um, the one thing, and probably no one else is going to comment on it tonight, but I heard it pop up was talk about artificial intelligence being used for bot analysis of body cam footage. Um, well, let me give you a short seminar on why that's a bad idea. Um, I'm sorry, this is not like your typical graduate seminars where we give pizza, but you know, COVID, we'll resume, no pizza for nobody right now. Um, so anyways, Artificial intelligence, basically, to put it simply, requires that it be taught, right? It's just kind of like any brain, except it's a machine. It needs to be taught. Problem is, is if the teacher is biased, or if the materials that you're using to teach that artificial intelligence are biased. What's going to happen when you teach it with biased, with biased lessons? You're going to get biased. Now, with what with what extent and what what stuff you're going to use for the body cam footage with analysis of artificial intelligence i don't know i mean shoot they did one like what it was 2016 in north carolina i believe it was in some case um the artificial intelligence couldn't identify like that another person was holding a weapon although all these experts and stuff who reviewed the video said yeah he's holding a weapon and either way 
talking about the statistical flaws and like the actual progress of the technology aside, what we have the problem is is flawed data, biased data. Where you know we have an, an inordinate like a, a disproportionate amount of people and minority black and African-American communities and poor communities that are getting arrested, the ones that are going to always be on the body cam footage, the ones that are always going to have that interaction with police, and also the kind of interactions that people are going to be looking for. Like, you know, I don't know what system you're going to use, who you hired to do it. Like, it's it's just, as someone who graduated with a master's degree that concerned, like, to some extent, machine learning, which is in the realm of artificial intelligence, it's a bad idea. So... I don't know what y'all got to do to make it so that you're not using artificial intelligence. Maybe you hire for more, you know, maybe you need people more for that role. Maybe you need, you know, kind of need to check how you're doing your funds. Kind of like, you know, think about where are you diverting your resources? I mean, there's a lot of things that could be solved where, you know, we could just kind of divert money to more social programs that actually help the community. But that's just me and I'm getting off topic. It always happens during a graduate seminar. Um, but yeah, basically flawed, biased, data is going to give you biased artificial intelligence that although may be a quick fix for and you know kind of make you know maybe make somebody's lives easier who's working in the police department but it sure is going to exacerbate a lot of problems down the road so anyways in conclusion i apologize for not bringing pizza to this graduate seminar and i thank you all for listening and have a good day you can collect flyers on the way out of the classroom sorry we're not in person my bad um anyways thank you Thank you. I'm going to turn the microphone on for Kent and Elmore. Hi, my name is Kenton Elmore, and I proudly live in Champaign. There were multiple questions from council earlier about uh, body cam footage, how it's reviewed and applied to policy, training, things like that. Uh, one of the ways that the police department does review that footage, which wasn't covered in much detail, is via... Um, the department's use of force review committee. So council member Foreman asked a brief question about it. And one of the previous callers, HRC chairperson Young brought it up as well. So, so I'm a former citizen member of the police of uh, use of force review committee. I resigned from that position earlier this year. So I, I speak here from direct experience. The committee is composed of citizens and police officers who review body cam footage from Champaign police officers on real calls. They review typically a dozen or more cases on a monthly basis. Um, I won't speak to the you know police's role in that review. I'm not a police officer, but the citizen input is something that I think is, is crucial and has been constructive over the past few years since citizens were added to that process. Um, unfortunately, I'm, I'm not sure how much awareness is out there regarding this component, but I, I do think it's something that can really help to shape a solid relationship uh, between our police department and the community if it's, um, if it's properly utilized. Uh, now, Councilmember Foreman also asked about the citizen composition of that committee. I can tell you again, as a former member, uh, that all the citizens on that committee are white. Um, and as the chief mentioned, there are two vacancies, and I know he's trying to fill those with citizen volunteers. I think it's clear, you know, adding diversity to that composition would be a big win uh, with community members to bring forth the community perspectives that we seem to be 
seeing are, are sometimes hard to find. Um, so, you know, overall, I, I've always supported our chief and our police department. I do think they do a great job. Uh, and I know that you be very open to appointing citizens to, um, you know, these volunteer positions that deal with review of body cam footage. Uh, so I really just wanted to bring this up again to raise awareness of that piece. Um, hopefully there are folks out there who would be interested in answering the call. Uh, perhaps it's council members, you know, some community members that serve well in that role, or maybe there's someone listening in or watching that wants to get actively involved and would be a good fit for uh, the use of force review committee. So uh, call Chief Cobb. I'm sure he'd love to hear from you. Thank you. I'm turning the microphone on for Christopher Hansen. Okay. Hi, uh, so my name is Christopher Hansen. I live in Urbana. Um, the biggest problem I see going on here is uh, you really haven't gotten into accountability like, and the devil's in the details, right? I mean, um, you still have the same old boys club of, you know, essentially unscrupulous uh, leadership running the police department, and they haven't demonstrated themselves capable <clears throat> of keeping their officers in line or of recognizing misconduct. And so that, that seems to be actually openly recognized because instead of focusing on uh, particular types of outcomes, you continue to focus on the image of the Champaign Police Department. And I remember your meeting back in March last year uh, you had Chief Cobb and his top three or four guys present. And that whole presentation on the police department was about improving their image. And it, you, you had virtually no discussion about having a good, qualified, nonviolent, um, responsible police department. Um, none of that mattered. Uh, all you focused on was your image and and, and getting more officers on the streets. I remember Greg Stock specifically said, you know, how do we get more boots on the streets? You never talked about if they were good boots. Um, and I think, I, I, I don't, I'm not hopeful for much improvement here because you still just have the same, same guys running the thing, the same, same old boys club, the same people who are gonna deny whenever something wrong happens. And, and you're just focusing on your PR so hard. Uh, and, and you're not, you're, not going to, you're not going to improve your quality this way. And I, I don't know, in regards to the CRS recommendations that were mentioned, you guys didn't adopt any of those. Changing 30 days filing time for a police complaint to 60, the request was no limit. Your, your response was a joke. You changed it from 30 to 60 and then you gave yourself six months or something like that to respond to a police complaint. Uh, it doesn't seem to me like you're actually taking input and recommendations that are coming your way. So I don't know. I, I, I watched your meeting last in March. I was there and, and you had, like I said, Chief Cobb and his top three or four guys. You had a million dollars of payroll sitting there, not knowing how to solve or, or really address the concerns of the community. Um, because all they know how to do is, is, is be their old boys club. And I, I don't know. I don't, I don't think you need to be paying Chief Cobb 300 grand a year or whatever his compensation is. Uh, I don't think you're getting a significant level of competence or usefulness out of that. I think what you should consider doing if you want to gain trust is to just replace 
all of your top staff in the police department with new people. Um, get a more diverse uh, leadership there. Um, get rid of this, what I, what I keep, what I'm calling a, an old boys club, which I, I think is, seems like it's almost incapable of changing and start fresh. And then, then you can have community trust because you can stop having these people who are so associated with this long history of, of failure and, and failure to recognize when there's misconduct. And, and then maybe you'll get some community trust. But I think the path you're on now, you're, I think you're probably just going, you're, you're shooting for another few decades of, of, of mistrust with the, with the police department because you're not, you're not really talking about changing. You're just talking about redesigning your image. So I think you should get away from that entirely uh, and, and actually look for some real change. Thanks. Thank you. There are no other hands raised. Now there are. Uh, Minnie Pearson, I'm gonna turn the microphone on for Minnie Pearson. Minnie Pearson, you might be muted. You might be muted. I got it. I moved the wrong button. Can you hear me now? Yes. Okay, good. I have the hardest time doing this. I'm going to be trained pretty soon. Uh, I've heard a lot of information tonight. I got on a little bit late. Uh, so I did not hear whether or not um, and all of the developments that the police is talking about, uh, do the police have a plan to protect children uh, or will they be developing a plan? And the reason I asked this question is because not something that happened in Champaign, but something that happened with uh, a child and a police officer in another state where the child was pepper sprayed. It was a nine-year-old or a child and, and the child was handcuffed. So uh, when I look at things like that, I think about where I live and what practices are being uh, done uh, here. So if there is not a plan uh, to how you protect children when, when they, uh, you know, they have encounters with the police, uh, that is something that we should seriously look at. Uh, even when the child is irate or have problems that the parent call you and say they can't handle their child or something like this, how, uh, what plans are put into place to positively uh, deal with those children. Also, uh, I am all for uh, police officers, uh, you know, we are stressing the wellness of police officers because we oftentimes do not look at the attitude of the police officers when they are making an arrest and we cannot police attitudes. So, uh, and, and, and racial, racial prejudices and things like that. But uh, those things uh, do play a big part in how you come in contact with people and, and, and the outcome, especially when it's possibly needs uh, uh, de-escalation type things. And also looking at the incident that happened out at uh, Walmart, what are the Walmart stores? And there was a big crowd of people. Uh, what, how would you positively, you know, do it in a positive way, uh, deal with uh, divert, dispersing, uh, you know, crowd control? And so those, those kinds of things, if they are handled the wrong way, uh, could further uh, 
promote distrust. So we want to, at all times, be thinking of how we, we're going to deal with something even before it happens. So it's always helpful to have something in place. And so those are my comments, but I heard a lot of wonderful things. I'm, I am really sort of pleased with, with the Champaign Police Department, however. Uh, it's a work in progress and nothing is perfect. Uh, we're not perfect and we're working with them. Uh, and I just want people to understand that it is a difficult time and we are all dealing with COVID. We're dealing with so many other things that causes us stress. And so I'm sure the police is dealing with stress as well. So whatever we demand for ourselves, we also demand for, you know, from our police department. So if we could look at those things, especially dealing with children. Thank you so much. Thank you. Turn the microphone on for Emily Close. Good evening, Council. My name is Emily Close. I live in Champaign. I've read the report. I watched the presentation and I have a few thoughts. Uh, first, the single sentence about Kevon Carrington on page three reads as follows. In October 2009, a Champaign police officer involved shooting led to the death of 15-year-old Kevon Carrington. That's it. That's the single skimpy lame sentence that the city came up with to reference this event. Although Kiwan's death reverberates in this community 11 and a half years later. Some of the asked for changes in policing after Kiwan's death led to finally in 2017, the creation of the CRS. So let me suggest a rewrite of that sentence that is more informative, upfront, honest, and revealing. Here's what I came up with. In October, 2009, a white Champaign police officer while answering a call for, answering a call for service and in the presence of the former police chief, also a white man, shot and killed Kiwan Carrington, a 15-year-old black youth. As a result of this act, which was ruled accidental, the city of Champaign paid out $470,000 in a settlement to Kiwan's family. Second, nowhere in the so-called historical context section in this document is there mention of the death of Richie Turner on November, 20, November 16, 2016. Turner, a 54-year-old homeless black man with drug, alcohol, and mental health issues, died after being subdued by four Champaign police officers, two of whom are still in the force, two of whom are now retired. I would expect that the circumstances of Turner's case, which is still fresh in the minds of some citizens since it happened in Campus Town during daylight hours, would be at the forefront for examining how the presence of a healthcare or mental health professional could have led to a better outcome for everyone. Yet Turner's name is absent from this entire 86-page report, which talks repeatedly about this public is how the public is demanding changes to how the police department handles citizens experiencing mental health and social interaction crises. Third, another thing you could have included under section about the Citizen Review Subcommittee on page 14 is that there is yet another lieutenant in the role of lieutenant for professional standards, the fourth person in this job in the two and a half years I've been engaged in the citizen complaint process. So welcome, Lieutenant, lieutenant Nathan Rath. I'm beating a dead horse here when I ask for better communication from the city about staff changes, especially in the police department. But truly, Council, how will you ever build trust with the community if information isn't shared easily and openly with the people who put you in those, in those seats. And so to close out, I'm gonna quote two lines of feedback made in response to question six. 
I think it was at a study, um, study circle. The question was, is there anything else you would like to share with the city regarding your vision for the future of public safety in Champaign, including potential changes you would suggest? And here's the answer. This conversation is not new. You are hearing the same message over and over again and still refuse to take any meaningful action. Do something, all caps. Y'all have a good evening. Thank you. There are no other hands raised, Madam Mayor. Council comment. Any council members wishing to say anything about the report? Council member Beck. Well, somebody's got to be the first one. I know I won't be the last, but I will be the first. Okay, so um, I, you know, I I'm, I was glad to see if a number of the things in the report. There's a couple uh, additions that I'd like to make that I hope will be considered um, by my other council members as possibilities that we can um, maybe look at. Um, I, I, I do like the one door co-respondent pilot project. I do like it, but I think that, um, you know, I, I guess one of the things that I'm, I'm not completely understanding from the description is what our role has been in developing that pilot um, it, it alludes to the fact that we've been part of that conversation. Um, I don't know what the pilot looks like exactly or what all of the components are. So I guess it would like additional information about what that pilot initiative really is and whether or not that's the co-responder um, model that we wish to use. Uh, it, I mean, it makes sense if we had one that we implemented countywide perhaps because we do provide mutual aid within the context of the county. Um, and I think that, you know, it would make sense then to have a, a model that everyone was, um, every, everyone was familiar with, but I don't, I don't know what that model is so I would like additional information about it. Um, and I think the other, the other piece is the, um, the, uh, the I, I, we were calling it the community service officer, I guess. Um, I would, in addition to community service officer, which I think that name could be finessed and maybe where it sits could be, we can also look at how that, where that, person and that position sits in relation to our patrol officers. Um, and when I said, I don't mean in a physical sense in a, <laughs> I mean more in a, a reporting sense. Um, and I do think though that we need to have something that is a victim advocate within the Champaign police. I think that's a hole that we have not yet filled even with this community service position um, because we have we continue to hear from people that they feel that the city does not respond to the needs of uh, gunshot victims, families, or violent crimes, uh, or, or crimes of any kind. We continue to hear from people that they feel that we are not as a city responding to them. Now, it may be that we are responding in a way that's not public, that people are not seeing or understanding, 
but I think that it would be uh, worth our exploring to see how we can better uh, provide services to people in that way. Because I think if we do, we're going to um, provide services as a whole to the community. Not, and it, it wouldn't be necessarily on an individual basis. It could be something that's in a broader context of, um, of uh, victim advocacy. So I, this came about really when I was having some questions from a crime victim, a, a possible, where there was a possible case that was gonna come forward. Ultimately, the case did not go forward to the state's attorney's office decided not to prosecute. But there were large questions about what's happening with my case. I don't understand what's going on with my case. I'm not getting any answers from, uh, you know, the investigators about where our things are at. And there was, and, and there was a lot of, a lot of need for someone to be there with that person. And so I think that we we do need to, to look at that. Um, I think that the, the other thing with about the community service piece, the community service officer piece is I, I firmly believe that police officers should not be responding to things like um, a, a suicidal assessment. Um, for example, you know, I, I know people that have had police officers show up at their house because they have made a claim of that they were feeling suicidal. And that has that really impacted them in, in a negative way. Not only did it make them feel like they were uh, engaging in criminal activity because they were having um, a very depressive episode, it was horribly embarrassing for them to have multiple police vehicles show up at their car, uh, show up at their house. Um, so that when there was, and then neighbors questioning why that happened. Um, so I think that, you know, we have to be aware that when we do make those calls that it's, we may have the best of intentions to help someone, but there are larger ripple effects that happen as a result of that interaction or our, our what we believe were our intentions to be good. They are actually causing more harm sometimes. So, but I think the community service officer um, can help do a lot of activities that we typically have given to our police officers, but they can go ahead and um, handle those in a way that is not criminalizing behavior that can help people to uh, come to solutions rather than having to, um, you know, make it into a, a, a criminal behavioral piece. Um, and I, you know, I, what I'd like to do is explore that more and what that looks like and how those priority three calls would shift over to those officers or, or those individuals um, and what that would look like. And again, I'm, I'm open to hearing other suggestions for names for that person. Um, and then just going down the list, you know, enhanced training curriculum, of course, is something that we're going to see because the state of Illinois is going to be requiring it of us. Uh, and, you know, I don't mean to downplay the importance of training. Training is important. Uh, implicit bias training is important. All of those things are important. You can only train someone so much if their intention is to not be trained <laughs> and to not change according to their train training. So, uh, you know, on the forefront, what I wanna see us do is continue to decide how we hire officers and what, and what tools we use to determine and screen 
uh, people as, as potential candidates for our officers. Um, and I think that a big piece of that is then continuing to work on what it is that we have as expectations for culture within our workplace at the city um, of Champaign. That is across the city of Champaign, not just in the police department, but across the city. Um, and looking at how we talk about policing and the ways and symbology that we use to talk about it. Um, I think those are important things. They've been brought up by a community comment before, and I continue to believe that those are important things that we need to look at as a, as a council and as a city. Um, the, uh, the customer feedback piece, I mean, you know, I mean, I think that's, you know, that, I don't, I'm not opposed to that. Um, and I think that in conclusion, one of the big pieces that we haven't talked about is that um, we have just a real lack of trust and we can do many of these things. Um, and this isn't a problem of the Champaign Police Department. This is a problem of how we uh, tend to policing in general in our city and, or in our, our country. And I think that we need to take another look at some of the um, recommendations that were made by our facilitator uh, for our community conversations and really talk about what it is that we can do to continually work to assess our relationship as um, a city government and that includes policing with our citizenry so that we can continue to hear and respond to concerns. Um, and so I'd like to take a further look at, at what he had to say and ways that we might continue to do that going forward in, in, a, in a real fashion. How do we make that as part of what we do, not a separate thing that we do like, oh, it's time to do our assessment now. How is it that that assessment is part of what we're doing constantly? So that feedback is constant flow. And maybe that's through the customer service piece. But I mean, I really want to think about that in a different way about how we're assessing what it is that we as a city are providing to people and then hearing and responding back. Um, so those are my, my uh, initial comments, the things that I'd like to see us do going forward and in what I'd like to hear a little bit more information about. Um, my final comment is this, that I, I want the, I hope that the public understands that this is not our final conversation. This is the first of many conversations that will hopefully occur about this process. Tonight is the initial report that we get where council says, oh, I wanna hear about these 10 more things and let's hear more about it. And then hopefully what will happen is we will have additional study sessions about specific topics within this context so we can continue to work on this. It can be frustrating to have a process be slow and to have a process be methodical in this way, but it's important to understand that as a council, this is the way we have to operate so that we have a public dialogue, so that we can come together as a public body to have that conversation. And that's the way we have to do business on, in, uh, on behalf of the people. So I think that this is, uh, you know, like I said, one of multiple conversations that's going to have that we're going to have, um, which get, will provide you, the public, with more opportunities to help us make more determinations about the best avenues to take. So thank you.
Thank you, Councilmember Pianfetti. Thank you, Your Honor. Um, thanks again um, for the presentation this evening and for everyone who uh, provided comments. Um, I was taking notes and kept writing and rewriting uh, thoughts. Um, but to you know, address some of the comments um, that council member Beck uh, presented, um, I am okay with the idea of a victim's advocate. In fact, um, it is something that I put down um, when I was asking questions about the community liaison because I wasn't sure if it was a community liaison for you know, the police or for the community because I, I felt that there was a disconnect and then you articulated it um, also in your comments um, and your questions. So um, for me, I do think that that is a necessary component to be able to um, help those who found themselves in a challenging situation um, be able to not be um, further challenged and, and facing more anxiety by lack of information. So I certainly would um, like some more information on that and what that might look like. Uh, additionally, in the idea of trust building, um, I was a little bit unsure about the whole customer service and the survey piece. Um, I understand that it's something that is, um, the idea is being um, done in different parts of the state. Um, but I just wasn't sure how much response you would get back from it. And I wasn't sure if that would help inform um, the, us the way we needed to get information back as to how things were being done. Um, so for me, um, I'm, not, I'm not opposed to that being one way that we are trying to collect information, but I certainly would be interested if there were other ways that we could look at um, assessing how we are doing um, and um, how people are feeling and the voices that are coming to the table that we continue in this um, um, conversation, that it is not just the surveys or here's a business card, um, scan the QR code. Um, you know, to me, those are a, you know, a few extra steps that we are asking people to take. Um, I do like the co-responder model, but similar to council member Beck, I didn't have enough information about the one door um, uh, example um, and the pilot program. And you know, I would like to know what, what more could we be doing and how can we be doing something um, if Urbana decides to take a longer timeline than we might want to start engaging in something? Is there something more that we could be doing? Um, the other thing that I was thinking about was an idea that was mentioned in the document as well, which was a residency and how that might play into um, you know, some, some things that were talked about in terms of um, what might be needed in attracting officers, their longevity, um, how they engage with the community, um, which also um, goes into the idea of the community service officers. Again, I'm, I'm okay with finessing the name. Um, I, I do think there were enough comments and um, it, it is kind of 
semantically a misnomer if they're not an officer um, of sorts or uh, you know community service officer. Um, let's try and find something different. Um, I I would um, I I kind of like the idea. I just think we need to understand really what this individual would be doing or these individuals would be doing a little bit better. Um, I'm okay with the mandated curriculum, how that would look. Again, um, I, I'm glad that we are following the NAACP um, shared principles um, as they currently are, but I think we also are going to be following the, the state um, guidelines. Um, Officer well-being um, is certainly that something that we need to be cognizant of, um, as well as our community well-being. So somewhere um, getting some information on how we do that in a way that we are um, moving forward for um, everybody, um, I think we'll take this in a positive direction. And um, again, this is a work in progress, and I certainly um, am supportive of um, our leadership and our police. I, it, nothing is a perfect system. Um, I know um, we are challenged and we do um, struggle, um, but I think that we are all trying to figure out how we can be better. Um, and that while there are things within our past um, that we are not proud of, um, we can look and try to figure out how they inform us to be better versions of, of who we want this city to be. And so um, I thank the um, commenters, again, a lot of very good um, and um, for the most part, respectful um, comments. So thank you for um, taking the time to join us this evening. Further council comment. Thanks, Mayor Gladney. Thanks. Yeah, I'll just echo the comments that have already been made. Um, and I want to hone in again on the um, the uh, the office, the distinction between the community service officers and what they really would be. Um, I think they need to maybe find a different name. Uh, but I am very intrigued by that option. I would like to see that pursued further, uh, particularly because we of our staffing issues we do currently have and probably will have in the future and also um you know the need i think for um a focus of, of our of our officers and, and detectives to focus more on like the violent crime that we're experiencing in community uh if we could have this other layer of of, of non-sworn whatever you want to call them officers or whatever uh who can then uh, assist uh, the community with these other things that um, don't appear to be um, violent in nature, but do are things that need to be addressed. Um, I think that would be a good, uh, a good compromise. And then um, the residency, uh, I don't want it to be necessarily a requirement, but I think it should be encouraged uh, if we can find a way to uh, encourage, whether that be monetarily, or if, if we have the funding for it, or, or some other way to encourage um, our officers to, to live in the community because uh, not unlike ourselves, um, they are servants of this community and represent it. And the best way to 
know and understand your community is uh, not only to work here, but uh, to live here. So I think that would be something to look at as well. Thank you. Councilmember Stock. Thank you. Um, I don't have a ton of things to add beyond what's already been said because no one has said anything of my colleagues that I disagree with. I, I would agree with everything that's been said so far. Um, I would like to see a, um, I don't know, uh, city manager, if that's a upcoming, if that's a study session at some point to tease out the community service officer and what that could look like and what other communities have done with that. And again, like my colleagues, I don't, I'm not married to that name by any means, but, uh, but to talk about that, but also to talk about maybe the study session could be a little bit broader to include just new positions. Uh, so like council, worker. Yeah. Council member stack, our intent is to have a number of these. So I think with your direction tonight, each of these concepts needs a deeper dive. I think certain council members have said this as well as the public. So I don't see this as one study session where we bring you five different initiatives. Probably what we'll do is we'll schedule a time to discuss just the possibilities around a co-responder model and bring more information about one door, but also look at other things we can do. Have another study session where we can dive into the concept of um, the community service officers and what that role might look like, what the titles would be. So there would be a series of more conversations that staff would bring back based on your general direction tonight. Okay, thank you. Yeah, I would like to definitely explore that, but also explore um, the social worker piece as well. If, we, if other departments in the area are doing it and certainly other departments nationwide are doing it, I think that's something we should take a hard look at. My, my initial reaction was to do it more on the back end um, following a domestic or following some sort of crisis, but I'm also not adverse as, as Ms. Young said about, you know, that maybe that's too late, that maybe, you know, somewhere on the front end. So I think that's definitely worth something to look at. Um, I agree with Council Member Gladney. I've talked about this before, the idea of, as we talk about community policing and people in the community, living in the community helps, right? It helps you understand the community. Some of the issues in the community helps you better be known in the community. So. Um, if we could look at some sort of residency incentives or seeing what that could look like, um, and I would say not just for police, I would say other departments as well, but certainly I think police, it really matters as we talk about if, if community uh, involvement is an issue, which I think we all agree that it is, and the report certainly bears that out, um, then I think we need to look at ways to, to um, improve that. The other thing I would I would mention too is just the idea, and uh, I sort of raised this in my questions, is the idea of retention. As we look at um, as we look at staffing issues going forward, I think we really need to take a hard look about what are we doing to keep people. And I understand people retire, I get it. Um, but beyond that, though, are there things that we could do as a department or as a city? to try to incentivize people to stay. Because it, if it takes a year to get people on the street um, from the time that they are hired and go through that lengthy process to get hired, um, then I think we need to look at, you know, investing some money in trying to get people to stay, uh, whatever that looks like. I don't know, and I don't mean money to the officer specifically, but just whatever, whatever some sort of retention program might look like. I think that we ought to probably take a good look at that. Um, I also want to just take a quick second to thank Dr. Dixon. A few of us have referenced his 
report tonight, but I listened to every single one of those sessions, and I think most of us did, and he really did a fantastic job, I think, of navigating the uh, callers and the issues and synthesizing that into the report that we got tonight. So I do want to kind of give a little shout out to Dr. Dixon as well. Um, that's all I have beyond what's already been said. So thank you for your report. Thank you. Councilmember Kyles. I want to thank um, uh, Chief Cobb, the community, uh, police staff for the report that was put forth tonight and all the work that went into the report, as well as the, the, the dialogue um, as it pertains to the, the circles, uh, the moderator, everyone engaged that made this, uh, this possible. A, a lot of things have changed in the last 11 years, um, including the tone in how we even have these type of conversations. Um, even in when we disagree, um, you know what? We can, we can, I feel that even in the, the harshest of criticisms, um, whether it's harsh to me or anyone else, it's like, you know what, it's still said in a way that we can receive it, extract, and then change um, uh, and, and add improvement to our force. Um, like many of the other council members, I'm not going to dive into the, uh, the, very, the, spe the specifics and repeat everything that's said. Uh, specifically, it's. I will say that's one of the reasons why I haven't just so yet passed a, a study session around because things like this, the recommendations, you know, when you talk about adding officers, when you talk about exploring um, different opportunities, not adding officers, but the community uh, service piece, um, um, community resource officer, I'm sorry, um, those things cost. And so wanting to make sure that we t we not only have the recommendations, but we also um, um, not only have recommendations, but we also have money to be able to fulfill the recommendation that's gonna move the conversation forward. I think the only meaningful thing outside of what's already been said was to, uh, and I wrote a couple of notes down is, you know, I support, I think council member Beck talked about it earlier. You know, I do support training um, but if I just stay on script, um, I would support not just training, but meaningful experiences that police officers and citizens can have together. Some people call that training and I understand that training is important. I would never say get rid of training, but, uh, cause it's better than nothing. However, sometimes training doesn't capture those meaningful dialogues that happen, particularly amongst, uh, African-American youth. Training that deals with why do African Americans run from the police, um, and not necessarily just from a law enforcement side, but from a real community side that really deals with the fear. Not that as a people we're trying to be non-compliant, but there is a fear that is um, um, that has evidence um, backed up by things that particularly have happened on the national scene. I know that we don't want to create um, um, law, particularly just around what happens, you know, on the national scene, but the reality is, you know, there is fear and there are things that have happened locally. So there are, there are conversations and healing that need to continue to happen, but those dialogues have to happen. Um, it's not far-fetched that if white people judge us based on what they saw on TV, 
for black people to judge police based on what they saw on TV. And so being able to have that dialogue and have that conversation, and that may not come up in the training, right? Another part of training that I think is important is a citizen's training, um, you know, and, and, and how uh, sometimes citizens make reports. So I have this coat on intentionally because if you see me walking down the street, you know, no, I'm not, I'm just a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a person that's walking and communicating or try, just trying to commute to one side to the other. A, a, a police officer may get a report uh, from a citizen that says a black man walking down the street looks suspectful, suspicious. So I'm just walking down the street to work, you know, and I have to walk through a particular community, um, and I'm walking in the and I'm walking whether I have a hoodie on or I have a ski mask on because it's cold outside, and somebody calls the police because I look suspicious. When citizens, we have to realize as citizens, when we say certain things, they send off trigger words. You know, trigger words is, wait a second, suspicious. And then all of a sudden, you know, again, this is where training and dialogue happens, you know, um, you know, making sure that, you know, hey, a, a black man just, you know, just walking down the street, just trying to get to work, all of a sudden a police officer pulls up beside him and starts asking questions. Now, here it is. I'm just trying to get to work. And yes, I should be, you know, by law, I want to be respectful. I want to be able to answer those questions, right? But the other side of me is like, why am I asking these questions? And so perhaps a small, and this is, this kind of goes thinking outside of the box, but these are every, it's not really thinking outside of the box, but these are these everyday experiences. So that if a citizen says, hey, I didn't know that if I call the police, maybe they did, maybe they didn't. I'm given the benefit of the doubt, but I'm saying this is a reality that if you call and you say certain things, those are trigger words that, you know what, that a police officer is trained to, a, when he or she is going to a scene, they're not, they're thinking, oh, wait, there's a, somebody that's suspicious. Now they may not, that, that, that may be all the information that's given is suspicion. Walking around with a hoodie, walking around with with a jacket that looks different, you know, than than what somebody else would make, and so obviously then the officer has the obligation to not just okay, you see a person just walking down the street, and now the officer has an obligation to say, hey, let me let me um, let me you know. It doesn't look like he's just a brother, uh, a person walking down the street. But I realized that as a black person, you know, and this is, again, these meaningful dialogues that occur and should occur more. If you, if I'm walking down the street and going to work and a police officer pulls up beside me, I know that he or she may be asking questions. They might even be asking them in a polite way. But in the back of my mind, I'm thinking to myself, why did I even get stopped? And I don't really feel like it, but I guess I'll do it just to, to get on with my day. Those are the meaningful conversations that not only need to, a lot of times we talk about the police 
and the citizens having conversations as far as, you know, and most of the time it's, you know, police, black youth, police, African-American, but really, to be honest with you, we probably should be having a deeper dialogue on how we're portrayed walking, walking through a neighborhood or going, and I have been caught on the wrong side of town before, not by the police officer, but I can, I can pretty much tell, you know, I mean, I don't walk around with a council member badge on, you know, I don't have a big old star that says I'm city council member Will Kyles and neither should I. And hey, let's just be real. Some people don't even care. Let's be honest about that. But the reality is if I'm walking down the street, I've seen, you know, I see the eyes. I, I get it. I, I, I've had some very interesting experiences that I'm just going to just keep it right there. And so, again, think about it when you're calling into the police and say, There's a, what more? And I'm just a patient kind of kind of individual. What more if a, a group of kids are walking down the street and they get stopped? You know, because of suspicion, you know, and it all became, you know, maybe the resident, you know, wanted to, hey, maybe there's robberies. Or I don't know, whatever the case may be, but all black people don't rob. And so I don't want to go. I think I'm illustrating. I think I basically made my point is that maybe there should be more meaningful dialogue amongst us as neighbors, um, you know, before it even gets to the police. And then as police respond, just understand psychologically how we feel, you know, and we're going to say, I'm going to say, hey, psychologically, I get how you feel. You're responding to a call. I get it. But nevertheless, if those dialogues don't happen on a meaningful level, I think that, you know, it's difficult to to especially in this age, be able to um, to uh, further the conversations more than what we've already done. It's, it's a, been a, a blessing. Um, um, like I said, I thank Chief Cobb, I thank his officers, I thank uh, the community for coming together for a conversation like this, and I look forward to the meaningful uh, action that will take place. Anyone else? Councilmember Brooks? Yeah, I also, I want to thank the members of the community who showed up for the listening sessions and the study circles or whatever they're called, study circles. I also wanna thank um, the facilitators and everybody involved in the process and the Champaign police um, for the work that you do and for being involved in the process and also for the report this evening. Um, not much to add, I, I would like more information about the One Door program also would be interested in um, encouraging residency and looking at retention too, because that's super important um, that we've got officers who will stay with us for a long period of time and who will um, do a good job. So I think that piece of it's really important. Um, I think in terms of in-house training, I think we can use the footage, body cam footage for that. How does an officer approach um, a car at a traffic stop? How does, you know, in those little things that maybe you don't see on a day-to-day -day basis or you think that are just fine, maybe those are things that can influence an interaction with a citizen. And so I'm not suggesting to go through every ounce of five to 7,000 hours a month, 5,000 to 7,000 hours a month of footage, but 
but you may have people who are in the midst of training or something where you know um, maybe that was a really good interaction. And, you know, I just think there's ways that we can always improve and looking at everyday things and things that are actually happening in the community and looking at those small things can make a huge difference. Um, I also am interested in the community service officers. Um, I think it allows quicker response for citizens who, who call in and need some assistance, um, but it also frees up officers to be able to do um, really the main things of what they're hired to do. Um, I think we need to be, I think whoever is in that role definitely needs to be really well trained and I think it needs to be really defined about um, what exactly um, their role is in that process. I think we need more, I would like more information on the One Door program. I think the officer well-being piece is super important and looking at potentially not only an annual physical exam, but also a mental health exam as well somehow. I think that job can be extremely stressful. It could be really difficult and you just wanna make sure that people are in a good state of mind so that they can do a good job and can interact safely with community members. And I also think that the community engagement and building the trust is absolutely essential. And so I think continuing those conversations, maybe going back with some of the study circles and having groups um, get back together, maybe as we delve more into these different issues and getting some additional feedback from people would be good. Um, because I think it's just really important that we continue the conversations that have begun. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else? Councilmember Bruno. I appreciate um, all that has been said and I don't disagree with any of it, but I wanna point out just a few things that make all of this so complicated. And I think uh, those of us on the city council know how complicated these issues are. And it would be helpful if the public also largely knew how complicated it is to try to solve some of these issues. First, we have a real hard time employing enough police officers to fill our ranks. So you layer on top of that a residency requirement and we will have an even more challenging uh, job of trying to fill our ranks with uh, suitable police officers. On the other hand, I really agree that if the police lived in our community, it would make a much better situation. We would immediately have uh, collective bargaining issues if we tried to implement a residency requirement. So about all we can do with the current state of collective bargaining in Illinois is to offer some financial incentive. But we're already at a challenge where we can't hire enough police officers. And if a police officer has a 10 year old kid and they just don't want them going to the public schools and uh, when mom or dad is a cop in town, because life might be pretty miserable for the child of a cop in the public schools, um, they might wanna live somewhere other than our community, but that's not good for our policing. And those are the kinds of uh, dilemmas that don't have easy solutions. 
we also, we tell the public all the time, we've been doing this since uh, September 11th or maybe even before that. If you see something, say something. We encourage the public. Anything you see that's suspicious, you gotta tell somebody. If you're um, boarding a train at, at Union Station and you see a suspicious package, tell somebody. If you see a suspicious car, tell somebody. So we get this message of if you see something, say something. And then when people do it, we say, you know, it was a racist uh, profiling. And sometimes it is. And I, we have a problem then with uh, a police officer who gets a dispatch from Metcat that says, there's a suspicious black man walking with a hoodie through my neighborhood. I think what happens typically there, and I, correct me if I'm wrong, I've heard that police officers will push back to dispatch and say, what exactly is this person doing that's suspicious? Because I'm not gonna go on this call and stop a person just because they're race or just because they're walking in a neighborhood. So we have that conflict of um, what do we do with the call that sounds like the caller is wrong, but we've encouraged the public to call the police if they see anything that they think is suspicious. Um, and we shouldn't be going out and stopping people. We have, there's a classic case out of Champaign that went up to the appellate court. And I think it was in the early 1980s where a police officer knew a woman to be a prostitute and knew she was a drug user and stopped her riding her bicycle through downtown Champaign because the bicycle was lacking a bell. And there was a city ordinance, might've also been an Illinois vehicle code requirement that bicycles should be equipped with a bell or horn. Really esoteric stuff and nobody normally gets stopped for that. But this police officer stopped this uh, person riding the bike uh, for the lack of a bell, searched her purse, found hypodermic needles, charged her with pos illegal possession of a hypodermic syringe, and it went up on appeal because the cop was honest enough to say, yes, it was a pretense for stopping her. I, I suspected she was uh, a drug user and she'd have paraphernalia on her, but I stopped her on a pretense because she was violating the ordinance about not having a bell on your bicycle. And the appellate court said, that's okay. Even though, even though that was your motive, if you did have probable cause, your stop was justified. So the other thing I would mention in this same storytelling about the prostitute on the bicycle without a bell, I've attended some annual police department award ceremonies. And uh, what happens at these award ceremonies is they tell a little story about some act of policing that one of the Champagne police officers did. And it might start out with, um, they followed this Chevrolet and it had a missing license plate light or didn't use its right turn signal. They pulled it over and they found 30 pounds of cannabis in the trunk and the room erupts in applause and this is great police work and thank you very much. And we busted this guy with 30 pounds of cannabis in the trunk or maybe he had 3000 child porn photos in the trunk of his car. And that gets a round of applause. But what doesn't get brought up at police awards ceremonies are the 10 other cases 
where they stopped somebody and there were no drugs in the trunk and there were no uh, child porn in the trunk. And that person just left with a sour taste about policing in America and developed a, an anger and a resistance and a, um, uh, a bad feeling about policing and their motivations. So that's a balancing act too. Um, it, when Michael Bloomberg imposed stop and frisk laws in New York City, they really trampled over a lot of people's civil rights, but they were very effective. Um, I had the life experiences of driving through East Germany when it was still communist controlled and also driving through Cuba. And in both those countries, you would be stopped for many little things. And it was very effective. They reduced crime a great deal in uh, what was then communist East Germany or in Cuba because they just stopped people uh, without any hesitation. So we have to recognize that while that's um, contrary to our American values, it happens to be effective policing. So we need to give it up. I, we, you know, what's the great quote? I'll probably butcher it about uh, people who um, want safety and liberty and deserve neither or something. The um, we can we can ramp up our policing and um, it's all these uh, probable cause um, fallbacks aren't just found in the Champaign city ordinances. They're, the Illinois vehicle code is replete with them. Um, so do we wanna encourage a police officer who looks at a car and thinks, I bet these guys are drug dealers do we want to encourage that police officer to stop them when they fail to use a turn signal? Um, because there's a price we pay as a society. If he stops them and he's wrong, then that's one more person with um, an attitude that they're not being treated fairly in our community because maybe somebody in a newer model car or in a different part of town wouldn't have gotten stopped for not using a turn signal. Um, I've defended DUI cases where the reason for the stop was uh, somebody had a rosary hanging from their rearview mirror. So they were charged with obstructed windshield. It's in fact a very frequent reason for the justification for stopping a impaired driver is an air freshener on the, or a necklace or a graduation cap tassel uh, is obstructing the view. And then you look at the squad car and they've got six computers, two cameras, a radar gun, and a little tiny peephole that they can look out through the glass of the windshield. So do as I say, don't do as I do. Um, it causes a lot, of, uh, a lot of angst in the community. And I, I'm making a broad collection of disparate remarks mostly to make the point that this is complicated stuff. The, e the solutions that may seem easy to some parts of our society and the solutions that people were suggesting when a uh, gathering chalked and uh, put water-based paints and whatever on our police department, um, 
they can't understand why we didn't just go out and make mass arrests of those people. Likewise, um, other folks in the community who are repetitively victimized by being stopped for the slightest transgression don't understand why we do that. And we can maybe uh, help our community by educating, this is why this happens. This is what the roots of it were. Um, and give us feedback. Do you not want that aggressive policing? Well, we can certainly ratchet back on our policing. Uh, if you're gonna be comfortable with that, we know how to do it. We just don't stop cars for that, those kinds of little things. But every once in a while, somebody's gonna slip through the cracks. Um, and is that a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Those are the policy decisions we need to decide as we go forward because they're complicated questions. And I'm not suggesting that the answer on any of these things is obvious. The answer is way more nuanced than many people on both sides of the equation think. It's a nuanced, complicated area of public policy. And I think we're making a good head start of trying to figure it out and what's the right solution for our community. Thanks. Thank you. Anyone else? Councilmember Foreman. I was really hoping not to say anything tonight because I really didn't think I needed to, but apparently we need to all take a history lesson on the police in the black community. So last month it was, let's give black people $500. This month during Black History Month, it's let's justify racial profiling. During the Bloomberg era, since you wanted to bring that up, because I didn't want to talk about it, but since we brought it up, let me just let you know that out of 10,000 stops, 14 actually turned up a gun. That's the actual number of that. So, so regardless, I'm just saying, I want you to know that that distaste out of 14 of 10,000 stops, the rest of the people, which I don't know the number, but 9,000 and whatever, those people walked away with a nasty taste in their mouth and a distrust. So the police department that was vandalized, that comes from distrust and that, that racial disparity that you think is no big deal. That's where that comes from. But I don't have time for that. But I don't have time for that. We'll, we'll skip that. One of the things that we want that we need to address that we don't talk about as a society, not as a city, the number one male for police code is a black male. The number one male in population is a white man. You're already starting the police off right there in a biased situation of how they do police calls. Point blank. It doesn't matter what you say to Metcad. Does Metcad tell you that the black man has dreads and he's seven foot tall? No. So you may stop a black man in a blue coat with a fur hood who's, who's five foot and is light skinned and not dark skinned. Those things matter. How the police stop people matter. And if we have a police chief and city council members who don't see it, what are the community relations really looking at in the city? So that's just that. But I didn't even want to get off on that. Since you took me there, then I went there. But the point is, is that the police community relations is an issue that the police need to also help fix. And there's no accountability. This city is reactionary. Everything we do is reactionary. This entire platform that we're doing right now is reactionary. Last year, we had a study session about the police department to bring more police officers in because of the violence, because of the gunshots that my children hear constantly that nobody else on this call hears, so it's not a big deal. It is a big deal. It's happening to people and we need to change that. But if we can't even deal with police relations with the people that we need to call, those same people with distrust Tom are the people who do not call when they see something. They do not testify in trials. We have a girl who hates a detective at the police department so much, she was shot in the back and she will not testify about what happened because that's how bad that distaste is. Now that's, that's some real deep distaste 
for someone to not even tell you someone who paralyzed them. Those are the type of things that are going on in the community, regardless of how much that, you know, that stop matters to, to most people. It does matter. It impacts those families. I don't care what you say, that stuff impacts people. And we as a community, police chief, city council members have to acknowledge that there's biases that have nothing to do with the city of Champaign. That stuff is there, but we have to actually make an effort to change that. We have to make an effort to have a use of force committee that the police chief appoints people to that represents our community. That is a diverse makeup of our community. Y'all don't even have a diverse makeup of the planning commission. How am I gonna convince you to have a diverse makeup of the police use of force? Because you don't see value there. And I don't know how many times on these police calls, or I mean, on these city council calls, I have to go over with y'all that the value of people that you guys display is disheartening and it's, it's very disgusting. It, it's very, it's very terrible. Also, something that we do not talk about that irritates my soul. The police are humans. They're police officers. We always talk about them as these officers, these people. The, they're humans. These are humans that you ask to go to these calls, to go to suicides, to interview rape victims, to do all these things. They're humans. And we don't talk about our police officers as employees and as humans. We don't have any real grasp of what's going on at the police department because y'all don't know. And y'all not going to admit that you don't know. You don't know what's going on at the police department. You have to go through three people before you know what's going on. Sometimes I know what's going on before most of y'all do because someone on the street has told me. That is not acceptable. That is reactionary behavior and we continue to have it. And accountability is a huge problem at the police department and it's a huge problem with this city council. We have to have accountability if we're gonna change anything. And I didn't even wanna go off on that tangent, but that's a real life thing. We have everything we've done since May has been reactionary, everything. There's not one thing that we have done in this community that wasn't reactionary. And I don't care how many citizens come to this meeting. We have 90,000 citizens, I think is what I asked the city manager. She believes that we have. And we have a small group of people who we've heard from. We want to hear from everybody. And we don't get that opportunity to do that because of this distaste, the distrust that people don't believe, we're, that we don't listen. And that's not just the people. I'm your colleague and I don't believe y'all listen or you value my life. So if I believe that and that's what I think, what does someone else who just clicked this on and hear what was going on say? That is real life stuff. And if the police chief and the city councils don't even understand or see that as an issue, then where are we going? We're not trying to solve societal problems. We're trying to solve champagne problems. Champagne don't have a problem with police officers that is so bad that we need to go and change everything. We just need to change things and how we as a community do things. That's it. How you call 911 does matter. How those dispatchers put those calls out matters so much. They matter to Letitia Lee when she called and her son was dying on her way from work and the dispatcher told her they were fireworks. That mattered. I know that's one person, but that mattered. It does. And so that's that 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 really is all I wanted to say. But anything that we can do to change the way police interact with the public, whether that's we treating them better as employees or treating them better as humans, and those same people that we're sending out into the street who are dealing with people at their worst, we need we need to have those same expectations for all of ourselves. Okay. We all need to make sure that when we're making decisions, we have those same expectations because we expect a lot from police officers. And I don't know that as city councils, as a city council, that we're actually helping them as employees to actually go out and do those jobs in the correct way. I don't think that that's a fair assessment of what's been going on. And I don't even think we have a narcotics unit anymore. So I don't think we're doing, you know, drug stops anyway, but thanks for coming to my Ted talk. Anyone else? Um, so thank you, uh, chief and the rest of staff for the comprehensive report. I also want to thank Dr. Dixon 
um, not only for running our um, community input, but also for his comprehensive um, written comments um, summarizing those. Those were very helpful to see along with the other study circle facilitators who took notes through that process. Um, appreciate them and I appreciate the citizens who participated. Um, I don't want to reiterate everything the rest of council has said. I agree with most of what has been said tonight. I do want to call out a couple of things that members of the public suggested that I do think are important for us to keep in mind. Um, the idea that training is not enough, that we also have to be thinking about what our metrics are around success. Um, I thought the comment about how do you bean count um, de-escalation when there's ultimately not an arrest. You can count how many arrests there are, but it's it's harder to track if, if the result um, is that there's a de-escalation and there's not an arrest. So we need to be thinking about what are our metrics for success. Um, I think tracking and reporting citizens' complaints um, if the CRS is not getting that adequately, they, we need to make sure that <clears throat> that is happening. Um, with respect to um, the idea of less interaction um, with the community, I kept thinking of the phrase in the Don't Shoot book, which we used as the model when we created See You Fresh Start. Um, and that book talks a lot about spear fishing versus net fishing and making sure that you are actually going after um, criminals who are, who are responsible for the violence within the community and not using things like traffic stops or jaywalking as an entry into the community to get at those criminals because it does exactly what everybody's been talking about tonight. It just aggravates the average citizen who's just trying to get on with their life every day and is really not doing anything that is illegal or, you know, so I, th I think that's something we need to continue to strive for. Um, I liked the idea, one of the members of the public talked about continuing to partner with the community as we try to implement the suggestions that are in the report um, and not just shouldering it all with police and council, but continuing to make sure the community is not only just having input through either written or oral comments, but that they have an opportunity to dig in and do the work with us. And if we can find ways to incorporate members of the community, I think that's incredibly important. Um, I, I agree that the trust building and the social workers are important. Um, I do worry about the stress of police on police officers and also on their families. And as we look at um, you know, different opportunities for um, stress relief. I know we have the OX2 program um, for fire. I think there are similar programs for police. I think the idea of incorporating 
<clears throat> officers, family members, um, and giving them a meaningful opportunity um, to have some stress relief and bonding opportunities is important as well. They are the support systems for our officers. I think our officers will police better um, if they have opportunities for, for mental health um, awareness and their families are supported. I think all of that is incredibly important. Um, I like the idea of trying to relieve the stress on the level three calls and waiting for it to escalate for our officers. And I say that mostly um, because I think there could be a role for whatever we decide to call the community service positions, but also because our last um, meeting pre-COVID was really about that our officer stress levels were high because our call volume was so high and that our community was frustrated because we couldn't serve them in a timely manner for the um, less immediate calls for the, you know, uh, the calls that we've been discussing that, you know, have some less urgency. Um, and that our officers could not, they didn't have enough time to then do some of the community um, responses that they would like to have. They couldn't do the community volunteer um, things that they wanted to do, the things that would make them better officers and would help to build trust. So I'm hoping that um, we can find ways to build that in there and that we are able to fill our open position so that um, our officers are well rested and they're not working multiple shifts because I do think that that um, is important for their mental health, but also could impact how um, they police the community as they become more stressed. Um, but I, I appreciate the work everybody has done. I look forward to, it sounds like a series of study sessions to really talk about and implement options and to continue to work with the community and with the officers. We have come a long way. We have um, you know, suggestions from the community, but we also have um, officer buy-in on perspective changes. And I think that's really important as we continue down this path together. So city manager, um, I don't, I don't know, I mean, we do have a poll. I don't know, you know, it's really just to allow police to continue to, to work on these items based on council comment. Um, do you have enough information? And I think I wanna thank council because you all gave very thoughtful comments about um, the things that we could do. I don't, I mean, in, unless you want to take the poll, I think we have adequate direction to move forward on um, the initiatives in the report, as well as some additional initiatives that um, you all raised this evening and supported one another. So um, I think that we have adequate direction to move forward. Okay, thank you. Uh, so then with that, we are at the point of our meeting for audience participation. If there's anyone who wishes to address the council, please 
Raise your hand in the Zoom, state your name and city of residence, and please limit your comments to five minutes or less. Turn the microphone on for Brian Dunn. Hello, my name is Brian from Brian Dunn from Champaign. Um, so, you know, just a few more thoughts. I don't think that we should wait for Urbana's one door project. Um, you know, while we do need to work with Urbana on whatever we do decide to do, uh, we need to immediately begin implementing non-carceral carceral caregiving crisis response. And we should be looking at alternative forms of addressing community harm and interpersonal conflict now. These are the things that are eroding trust. You're not going to have trust in your community when all you can do is haul your community off to jail. I remember the woman who got stuck in the bed of the truck that drove through protesters. She said during a listening session that she was open to restorative justice practices to address the harm done to her. Uh, so that's the type of avenue that we need to fundamentally, radically, systematically change the processes of which we and the policies which we use to you know, promote or adhere to public safety. And this is something that is long overdue. The, the, the report talked about pamphlets all the time. If uh, there's a pamphlet about anything, it should be about what you can do instead of calling the police in various circumstances. You know, that seems to be a big theme here is that police are getting called for stuff that, you know, probably could be handled in a different way, in a way that's cheaper for the community, that's more effective for the community. And, you know, maybe that pamphlet could also involve a little bit more information about the complaint process. Um, I don't think that any kind of pamphlet needs to, you know, tell the citizens what they need to do to not get shot. We know those things. Usually when people do the wrong things, it's a trauma response. It's not based on their knowledge. It's based on fight or flight. Um, so, you know, if a complaint does need to be filed, it's important that there is zero police station or police officer contact involved to make the process as safe as possible. And, you know, so we're, we're, we're looking at, we're looking at priority three here, taking up close to 50% of, you know, the, the call volume. And let's see, a, a police officer starting rate is around $30. I would do whatever this CSO position is going to be, as long as I don't have to do any kind of, you know, punitive forms of punishment on people. I would do that for $15 an hour, easy. If I get half the pay, half the pension, I would do that job for the rest of my life. Are you kidding me? I've been working customer service for 16 years in this town. You know, the type of crap that I've put up with or, you know, physically had to clean up literal crap for less than $10 an hour. There's a lot of people in this community who would love to do a job like that. And it would free up a lot of space for police to do whatever or whatever. But I don't think these things are as complicated as we're making them. I think that we just need to start making changes now. We need to understand that these changes aren't going to be perfect out the gate, but that's not a reason to not do them because what we're working with right now is obviously getting people killed. So what's the, what do we have to lose at this moment? We need to gain trust in the community. And to do that, it is obvious that we need to fundamentally make radical changes in funding and policy to make sure our community is safe and equitable. Those should be the priorities. Thank you. I'll turn on the microphone for Alan Max Axelrod. 
All right, uh, I'm gonna start on the topic of policing and then I'm, oh, sorry, City of Urbana, Alan Max, Um I'm going to start with CU Fresh um, because there's notes that I had taken when Mayor Deb Finan uh, had spoken at a social work class that I happened to be taking. Again, April 12th, uh, 2018. This didn't make it into my notes, but I found it deeply disturbing that as part of that process, the discussion was if someone so much as jaywalked, they were going back. I hope that that is an inaccurate memory of mine. I hope that is not part of the program. Uh, if it is, that should change. Um, now on to probably more expected and less ominous comments. So um, turns out the city of Urbana did not know that water shutoffs were still happening. The fourth moratorium that was won by no Ameren shutoffs never stopped water shutoffs. It stopped power shutoffs to the tune of over 20,000 power shutoffs in November and only one in December and Ameren, Illinois is being investigated for that one. However, over 2,000 water shutoffs have been happening monthly since they've started and continue to happen. And the cities of Champaign and Urbana and also the county are grossly overrepresented in the data. I, alongside um, the Citizens Utility Board, will, uh, should we complete the presentation in time, be presenting at the city of Urbana uh, this coming Monday. Please tune in to learn a great deal about the things that apparently haven't made into the gubernatorial or attorney general press releases, although misinformation has definitely been there. So I guess the remainder of uh, what I'd like to say has to do with the fact that I want to emphasize that the notes from April 12th also talked about how um, Mayor Deb you had a strong preference for people uh, approaching outside of city council meetings to establish a working relationship with the representatives. And that I had made uh, two requests to meet with you uh, the second one, I don't think was honored. The first one was. Thank you for that first meeting. But I think that there's some sort of mismatch here. Uh, and maybe some things have changed since 2018. But we are heading towards really dark waters. And we're going to have to figure out whatever the correct procedure is fast. When utility shutoffs, if we do not get ahead of it, resume in April. Keep in mind, we have done barely a tenth of the vaccine distribution needed at this time. It is fully expected for another spike to happen. We are generating a graphic to explain the timeline of utility shutoffs, but let me just remind you of this. We have had over 2,000 cases a day, every day, from October 7th until yesterday. Have a good night. There are no other hands raised, Madam Mayor. Are there any council comments? Councilmember Panfetti. I just uh, wanted to thank the community um, that came out and supported um, either in person or through their money, one winner, not 
one winter's night and for the contributions that were made to see you at home. Um, I thought that was a really good um, indication of what our community can do to come together and to support those um, who are in need. Um, and also, I know we have been talking this evening a lot about the police, um, but I wanted to um, just say thank you to the fire department and to the unit four teacher um, for the distribution of the fire alarms that were um, the teacher recognized that there were some houses that um, did not have fire alarms or their fire alarms were um, beeping um, during virtual learning. Um, she heard the beeping in the background. And so the fire department did distribute out about 15 or so fire um, smoke detectors, I'm sorry, smoke detectors. And again, another good um, partnership with um, the community. And so I just wanted to end on a positive note um, about what our community can do when we come together and um, become solution makers. And I thought it was just really, um, you know, the teacher, you know, saw something and kept hearing the beeping in, in some of the classes as uh, the teaching was going on. So um, anyway, just wanted to share those two positive notes. I was proud of our community. So thanks, have a good night. Anyone else? Uh, I just wanted to mention Mr. Axelrod, I had a Zoom with you and I also had a phone call with you. My memory on the phone call was that you were um, late or making coffee or something. And so you actually had to call me back because you missed my initial call. Um, if there are other requests to meet, I have tried to honor all of those. If we've missed one, you can get in touch with me or my assistant, Joe Lamberson, who's pretty good at setting those up. And I don't think that I have ever refused to meet with you. Um, city manager. I have nothing further, Your Honor. All right, I need a motion to adjourn. Madam, <clears throat> Madam Mayor, I move that we adjourn. Second. Will the clerk please call the roll? Councilmember Bruno? Uh, yes. Foreman? Yes. Gladney? Yes. Kyles? Yes. P. and Fetty? Yes. Stock? Yes. Beck? Yes. Bricks? Yes. Mayor Finan? Yes, we are adjourned.